Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER, for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states. Or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. The Meat Eater Podcast is brought to you by First Light. Whether you're checking trail cams, hanging deer stands, or scouting for elk, First Light has performance apparel to support every hunter in every environment. Check it out at firstlight.com. F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. All right, Dave Smith is here from DSD, Dave Smith Decoys. Hates doing podcasts. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Guy knows a lot about hunting. He knows a lot about hunting. Yeah. Every time I talk to him, I, I've learned something new that I've never learned in the, whatever, 31, almost 32 years I've been alive. Yeah, he's an artiste. Yeah. An artist, decoy designer, built a great business, Dave Smith Decoys. Likes to hunt comfortably. Likes to hunt comfortably, <laughs> self-deprecating, funny. What more could you ask? You're already yeah. married though, right? Well, I I mean, I'm just jealous of all you guys that can actually move around the mountains and everything like that and are physically fit and everything. So I just hunt the way that I have to. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I've noticed that I'm old. I'm e- like easily the oldest uh, person in this entire organization. Oh, yeah. You might have beat Brody. Uh, whoever he is, I'd call him a kid. How old are you? I just turned 60. Yeah, you might be the oldest person. That's right. So you guys, <laughs> I expect to be treated as such. So when he talks, <laughs> listen up. Exactly. Uh, we also got Jason Phelps joining remotely. He's going to tell you with, with uh, the elk bugle coming up, elk season coming up, elk archery. Phelps is going to share with you, our esteemed listeners. Three, I, I asked him three things that people ought to keep in mind. And he's going to share three things that people ought to keep in mind. We 
We got uh, Chester here, Uncle Chasty. Seth, Corinne's wearing her headphones today. Yannis mm-hmm. Putellis. Looking good, Corinne. Thanks, Yanni. Phil's over in his little corner. Um, everything's great. We got a couple announcements to make up top. We are re-kicking off. Yanni, that? Yanni's playing on his phone. Come on, Yanni. <laughs> trying to plug stuff. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> We're re-kicking off the auction house of oddities, which comes and goes, as you know. But holy smokes, the lineup this year. So uh, when when's it start, Kryn? This week. Oh, it does? This week. How's that possible? Oh, yeah. As in this week in the future when <laughs> no, this airs. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> We have. I'm holding a couple of them. So for one thing I'm not holding, I don't know if Sunday it might wind up on the auction house of oddities, is we finally, after forever, so we bought a punt gun at a, a antique auction for way more money than I'd care to admit. But the barrel, I'm only holding the action. Um, The barrel takes a couple people to hold. Yeah, if you're watching on, if you're listening on YouTube, you can see what I'm talking about. You, It takes two people to pick the barrel up. It's a hundred pound barrel. It's more like a cannon. Can yeah, you use it's, that to like exercise seven feet, your it's biceps? It's seven feet long. Is there going to be a raffle for who gets to uh, hold the, the barrel when we shoot it? No, because I think the liability, you don't hold the barrel when you shoot it. Yeah. You I don't? wouldn't want no, to. No, it's in a two, mount. Two people don't hold it? The way a punt gun worked is you had a little vessel. You had a little boat, picture like a little canoe that just basically accommodates the punt gun. Mm-hmm. On like a swivel. And it's, well, right? kind of. No, it's on a frame. And the it's on a slide. It, it, it's on a frame. You don't move the punt gun. You move the boat. It's on a sliding block filled with bags of uh, sand, or they would use sea oats to absorb some of the recoil. Because that boat, when you pull the trigger, that boat's going backwards. The shell, I'm holding the shell right now. This shell, so... It's a two gauge shotgun, but this is the shell is nine inches long. It, this thing throws over a pound lead. Made for getting things. And you would go up <laughs> often at night, you would go up on rafted ducks, aim your boat at them, cock it, and pull the rope. So don't aim that at me. <laughs> well, you're safe right now. So. <laughs> Almost had an accident this morning. <laughs> so we had to go to an engineering firm to get ammo made. I'm holding a, a an original casing. It's a two-gauge shotgun. Um, gauge being inverse, like wire and whatnot. Uh, they don't sell it as such, but it's basically a two-gauge shotgun. We went to an engineering meaning, outfit. Meaning, meaning that if you took a pound of lead and split it into... Two balls, one of the balls would fit. Is that how it goes? Yeah, well, the way, yeah, I shouldn't say, yeah. So what we did is, yes, gauge traditionally comes from a 12-gauge a shotgun means 12, it takes 12 lead spheres that diameter to comprise a pound. A 20-gauge shotgun takes 20 lead spheres that diameter to comprise a pound. A 410 is obviously a, a measurement. Mm-hmm. Um, four tenths of an so inch. So does it hold true for the two gauge? So this is just extrapolated up on bore diameter, but I haven't correlated it to lead spheres. But I'm assuming, I'm assuming so. 
they didn't sell them as such, but yeah. And and it also the other thing about it is the casing is um I'll do that. I'll make a lead sphere with my micrometer, perhaps. We sent it to an engineering firm and they made us a partial shell with a primer. And I needed to test the punt gun. So I have here I'm cocking it. You can hear. That's the cocking. Here's the rope pull. Now, when you hit it on your finger, you could feel the firing pin. But we didn't, we wanted to make sure before we went through all this hassle, we wanted to make sure that the mechanism was still good in it. So these guys loaded up a primed practice shell. Today, in demonstrating how a shotgun shell normally worked, I wasn't really thinking clear. First off, I cut the shell open, poured the shot off, pulled the wad out, dumped the powder out on my workbench, and I wanted to knock the primer out of there. But I had it upside down, and I was trying to push it out and couldn't get it, so I eventually took a Phillips screwdriver and put it through the shell against the primer and was trying to push it out, but wouldn't come, so I picked up a pair of bullnose pliers, trapper's pliers, and flap! Whap the end of that thing going the wrong direction, but it still activated that son of a bitch. Scared the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, me too. Blew that primer off with all that powder laying there, man. The oh, powder glad, glad, you're, glad you're still with us, dude. Oh, my God, man. <laughs> I could have hurt my eyeballs. Yeah. That would have been the thing is it would have really hurt your eyeballs. Oh, yeah. Because it was right in my face. It surprised the hell out of me when it went off. Oh, I know. And I was even in the you back. You were there, too. Yeah, I was filming at it. At the moment, I took... <laughs> At the moment, I took those bullnose pliers and was kind of coming oh, down no. on that handle, that screwdriver. I you was thinking, does it work in reverse? <laughs> Bam! <laughs> well, we've had- All that powder was like, what, 18 inches away? Yeah. But it could have just as well. I would not have done anything different if that powder was like right in a pile below the But you, you think that it would have been the flash that would have hurt your eyes? or, yeah. or yeah, just yeah. the debris. Can we watch just that footage? Oh, yeah. Just the debris from that primer hurt my eyes. Yeah. It was loud. Then Spencer was like, I need some hearing protection. Yeah, you need some <laughs> eye protection. So we screwed it in. You see, like, this thing, so this punt gun action threads in, right? The, like, you know, you'd kill 20 ducks at, with a shot with this thing. In a good, That'd be a good eye. We have a whole book. We have a book called The Outlaw Gunner. It's about punt gunners. And um, he was like, people get the wrong idea. 20 is a good pull. Nine is a good pull. It's, people weren't killing whole flocks of ducks with a single shot from a punt gun. But my old man, who was old when he had me, my old man remembers seeing punt gunners, illegal punt gunners, that had three punt guns stacked. One off the water. Then you pull the next rope, and it hits them as they get taken flight, and the third shot hits them a little higher. He said they had three of them stacked at different angles. I don't know where the hell he was when he saw that. How Jeez. wide is the spread? I don't know yet. So you remember Gallagher, the comedian Gallagher? Okay. Wow. Uh, I'm out. I'm on the Dave, outs. you know about Gallagher. What about you two? Too young I, for Gallagher? I know Gallagher. Not too young. He's I know dumb. He got the he has, he's got the, <laughs> got the striped shirt and the mustache and the hair and the hammer. Oh, he was bald. Imagine a bald. He smashed watermelon. Imagine a bald husky. <laughs> Remember when you were a kid and if you the word husky, if you were like a chunky kid, they'd say yeah, you're yeah. husky. Well, they, yeah. husky they pants. Husky they used pants to be pants. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. You like and it, met, it was meant for like kind of chunky kids. I remember my mom brought me home a pair of husky pants one time by accident, and I I thought she she was saying I was like fat. 
Yeah. Kind of tore me up a bit, but so Gallagher, there he is. <laughs> Gallagher, imagine Weird Al if he was husky and bald, <laughs> but still had all the long hair. So like, it's the kind of long hair, and it's kind of a sweet look. When you go bald on top, but you grow real long, that little half moon mm-hmm. toilet seat deal. But you grow that out long. Are you gonna do that? Oh, I've often talked about that's gonna be chester. <laughs> but I'm gonna do it and slick it back, man. Oh so, man. <laughs> anyways, Gallagher had two Gallagher had two groups. He had two lines of comedy, and they were very different, but he'd combine them into one set. One of his thing was how ridiculous the English language was. So he'd get a lot of mileage. How could there be like there? T-H-E-R-E, you know, but then there's there, T-H-E-I-R. And he got a tremendous amount of mileage out of the idiosyncrasies of the English language, how things spell, and and, and then he'd start to lose people or whatever, and he'd <laughs> get out a why. huge sledgehammer and fruit, and then he would proceed to smash fruit with a sledgehammer, and people in the know would buy tickets to Gallagher, and they would wear raincoats Mm-mm. and get visqueen uh and whatnot to protect themselves and gallagher would set up a watermelon or whatever and and hit it with a hammer point being that's what this punt gun is for so when you were saying you were asking me if i knew of gallagher i was just sitting there thinking like the first thing that came to my mind was that dumb comedian and i was sitting there trying to think well that can't be it like like who is this person that knows all about waterfowl lore you know i'm trying to think who's gallagher who's gallagher you know no we want to shoot stuff like watermelons and whatnot with this punt gun there you go but one of the things i want to do is just put out a couple sheets of plywood at 50 60 yards whatever and see what kind of pattern you get out of those we can put out a whole flock of dave smith decoys well yeah. uh, <laughs> just well, see what happens or some other brands well, what I'm, thinking is I'm gonna round up i'm gonna round up people that have old faded out like i have some in my collection i have some old faded out you know decoys oh yeah, i do, yeah, I do, I do get, too like, some yeah. old flambeaux where like yeah. They, like, they paint the beak in the wrong spot on them and whatnot. Yep. Get some of those and line them out and maybe shoot at them. When we do I just that, don't want to put a pound of lead out and do a pond is the problem. Yeah. When we do that, we should paint the decoys in such a way that the shot would really read well. Or fill them with that stuff that people fill decoy targets with nowadays. <laughs> the Tannerite? Stuff that, Tannerite. <laughs> Then you know with the ones that blow up, you know that they got hit. Yeah, yeah, we'll figure it out. I I know the perfect guy that you got to talk to, Worth Matthewson. Is he a punt gun man? Well, he knows all about him, and he does. He still hunts with an eight gauge. Uh, Goes to Scotland every year and hunts, and he's he's a heck of a great guy and just a waterfowl mentor of mine. And um, he's been around. A long time. Sorry. Oh, really? And he knows about. He'd be able to share with us some info about punt guns. Absolutely. Does he own a punt gun? He he might. Um, I'll check with him. I'll send it. I'll call him up. Um, he might, he talks about them all the time. You see how this is at Holland and Holland, H and H punt uh-huh. gun and the barrel. You couldn't see it. Cause the, I mean the, the, this part's beautiful. It's very ornate. It's all inscribed, but the barrel just looks like a cannon off a warship. And someone had painted it gunship gray. And I dremeled off the, uh, I dremeled off some of the paint. You can see the old address at London street, the address for H and H in London. It's cool, man. But um, that's that. Was I talking about the Auction House of Oddities? That's not in it. <laughs> 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 I 
but <laughs> so, sorry listen. if you got your hopes up. Yeah, you got your hopes up. So, well, point being, it might someday be there. Auction House of Oddities this year. You could do an opening weekend deer hunt at Doug Dur- at the Duran Family Farm, or you can go on a turkey hunt at the Duran Family Farm and get a tour of the Duran Family Farm. And when you're there, ask Doug if he will take you to the spring house. And depending on your age, ask for the spring house story. Hmm. Is that the odd part about it? Oh. Because What makes the auction house of oddities odd? Yeah. Doug's an odd guy. Okay. He'll probably take you down to get curds. Oh, yeah. You'll you'll definitely go for a little tour over to Car Valley. Mm -hmm. Oh, and Doug will be like, what? You been to Car Valley? Mm-hmm. You'll take Dern oh, yeah. Road. You'll take Dern Road, and Doug will drive around real slow and tell yeah. you like stories about his family members, murder and mayhem, and cousins, and who owned what, and what that guy. Okay, yeah. This and that, uh, right? And yeah. that tree one time, and you that know, one fun. time he urinated all the way over the top of that stop sign, but his friend tried to do the same and shat his pants. <laughs> What like I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty odd. And then you'll get to do you'll get to do a uh, a hunt on the Duran farm where we filmed hunts and have done hunts and I take my kids there every year for spring turkey or a deer hunt on the Duran farm just for three hundred. So that's in the auction house of oddities. You you bid, win the package, and then pick what you want, and you get a tour of the Duran family farm. The oddity part, I don't know. It's what you just said. All that. <laughs> spring house. Oh, go to the spring house, and depending on age and everything, Doug might tell you the spring house tale. I don't think I've heard that one. Well, I have not. My kids have not. But Maybe I I'll have. bid on it. You should bid on that, Chester. A handmade log home from Naughty Log Homes. Really? really? I'm not kidding you. 12 by 20 Trapper's Cabin. They're donating this? They have this? donated to our land access initiative a log home, a 12 by 20, 240 foot square trapper's cabin, four foot overhang off the front, shipped anywhere. Wow. What, when, what do you mean anywhere? Pile when you US. auction, when you buy it at auction, you'll have to pay to have it shipped. Oh. But they're in Idaho. They're in Idaho. Say I could use one of those up at the shack. Better dig, yeah. Replace so back to that in. Better dig deep. <laughs> I think you meant to say it because I need one of those in Wisconsin. You need too. to talk to someone with a Chinook helicopter, yeah, and get it dropped in where you want it. Twelve by twenty. I wish I had that damn thing. Yeah, <clears throat> <clears throat> a lot of art. So, um, we people might see. Can we? Can we put? We don't have. I wish I had this in here. The, from Jamie Wild Art. She did the commissioned painting of mine of the wolves disemboweling yeah. the mm-hmm. bison and eating it alive. She also does a lot of canine art. So we have a print of my commissioned painting, which hangs just outside our studio door, of the wolves eating a bison alive while it's still standing there and disemboweling it. Um, a print of that that Jamie and I will both sign. And then a piece of custom work from Jamie. We have custom artwork from Kelsey Morris, Seth Morris' wife, Kelsey Morris of Studio Gallery. What's it called? Yeah, the Studio Gallery. The Studio Gallery in Three Forks, Montana. Dinner for four at my house. That's an auction item. You, three friends, come to my house, and we will serve you many courses of phenomenal food at my house. Yanni's going to join in, I believe. I don't know if he knows it yet. 
Hopefully, uh, Cal will be there to serve. This is separate from the big giveaway dinner at your That's house. That's a different dinner. Yeah. Is there a vegan, That's not a vegan option? That one, <clears throat> yeah. If you want it to be vegan, I'll make it vegan. <laughs> I don't. If you win the auction, you win the auction. It's up to you. No, we have another giveaway dinner that we're doing here at the office. This is a dinner at my house. You and three friends come to my house. I will cook you dinner. Yanni will be there to help serve. We'll get a whole bunch of our crew down there to help with the meal. A FOB harness, an FOB FHF harness called the Fur Trappers Edition, where we're going to, Paul Lewis from FHF is going to face one of his FOB bino harnesses in furs that I caught. Oh, that's sweet. If you want it done in mink, we'll do it in mink. If you want it done in martin, we'll do it in martin. If you want it done in beaver, we'll do it in beaver. So you get a fur fob harness, one of a kind. That's up for auction. The elk bugle tube that Phelps used on the hunt where he and I hunted in New Mexico. Signed. Um, Scrolling down. I'm holding right now, if you're watching, you can see this. I'm holding an arrow that says Ted Nugent 91. Now check this out. I got to put my spectacles on. Gearing up. Ready? We had a while ago, long time ago, Uncle Teddy, Teddy Nuggets, as Cal calls him. We called him Uncle Ted growing up. We had him on the show and he talked about doing a show in rock. He talked about doing a show in northern Michigan where he missed a target. A guy wrote in and said, I have me working backstage security for that concert up at the castle in Charlevoix. After the shot and subsequent miss, Ted's assistant came back and set Ted's bow and arrow down on a table that was just backstage. Long story short, they asked the security guy to keep an eye on the bow until they'd come back and retrieve it after the show. They just left it on a table. By and by, here comes the guy that comes and grabs the bow and goes to walk off with it. Ted's like, or the guy, the security guy's like, what the hell are you doing? He goes, they told me to grab the bow. He said, no, 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 no. Um, someone told me to watch the bow till Ted comes, gets it. You ain't him. I'm holding the bow. Another guy comes up and says, what's going on? He said, this guy says he's supposed to pick up the bow. Wound up being the guy who was trying to steal the bow. Now, the arrow that Ted had missed with, was broken. When Ted found out that the guy saved his bow from getting stolen, he said, let me know if there's ever anything I can do for you. The guy said, yeah, you could. I would like to have that arrow. Uncle Ted then signed the arrow. We have the full, in art, this is called the provenance, the provenance. We have the provenance of the arrow. I then emailed Uncle Ted and said, check this story out. His reply was, um, damn cool, huh? <laughs> <laughs> this will be in the auction house of oddities. An aluminum shaft, Ted Nugent, 91. That's cool. Checks out. And that, Full hold on. Freaking story. You might have already said this, but it, he missed the target. Is that the one where he missed a target and then he decided to get down on his hands and knees and, and no, pray I shared to that the... story with him. That was at a whiplash bash. Okay. He missed oh. a target and then got down on his knees. And he missed the target of a white buffalo before doing great white buffalo. Got down on his knees and bowed before the white buffalo target. Me and my late friend, Eric Kern, uh, we didn't catch that one, but me and my late friend, Eric Kern, went to the Whiplash Bash and Uncle Ted threw out jerky. And me and Eric picked up some jerky off the floor and ate it. 
Nice. Rock and roll. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Different times. That's some rock and roll right there. That's in the auction house of oddities. My personal Weatherby Mark V chambered in 300 wind mag left-handed, which we filmed a bunch of Meteor episodes, is in the auction house of oddities. And also, if you've if you watch the show, you've seen a hundred times this thing where a moose gets up and, and charges me, and I go something like that. That gun. Now, if you watch that episode, you'll see that the gun appears to misfire. So a lot of people have asked about the misfire. It didn't. I shot at the moose. It ran off. And I cha- I immediately instinctively chambered around. Ran after the moose and forgot that I had chambered the round. Because I I'd hit it in the brisket and it went down and got up. And I knew it was probably not mortally wounded. So it wasn't like, oh, well, wait and let him run off and die. So I ran after him to try to get another one in him. The minute I started running, later reviewing the footage, the minute I started running, I rechambered. So I had three in the I had three in the magazine, none in the chamber. Chambered, shot the bull. Two shots left. Spit the empty out, put a live in. Started running, forgot, spit the live out, put a live in, shot at the moose again as it ran through the brush. Chambered again, now I'm empty. I walk up to the moose to dispatch it and click. So people are like, oh, his gun misfired. The gun didn't misfire. That gun's fine. I still own it today. It is a Carolina custom rifle chambered in 300 short mag. That gun from that moose charge and those episodes will be in the auction house of oddities. I have a quick question. You just said, you just <laughs> referred to that moose as charging. Like I just watched an episode not too long ago of uh, a 600 pound grizzly bear running at you and Cal as fast as a bear can run, and you called it false charging. And I'm just kind of curious, what does charging look like? And if he that's... made contact with me. <laughs> okay, so I mean, I was thinking that, like, you know, it's like you come home, you know, from somewhere, and your your truck is riddled in bullets and stuff. And what do you say to your wife? Like, oh, I got false shot at. Like, none of the bullets actually hit me, so I got false shot at. Like, uh, I was thinking. Good point. We were... Yeah, Corinne, I'm holding up another item from the auction house of oddities. These come from; these are from some There's Martins. I caught a pair of earrings. Yeah, Steve caught Martins this past year. I had a hat made for my wife. We had the tails left over. Wow, Corinne has fashioned these into gorgeous earrings. Yeah, those describe are, them, Corinne. Uh, so they're Herkimer quartz diamonds from a podcast listener. Um, Herkimer. Mm-hmm. Herk Herk uh, diamonds. Um, and, uh, the mink, the, oops, pardon me, the Martin tails from Steve's Martins and then a sterling silver wire wrap. So it's all sterling silver. Do you have holes in your ears, and... I did, but I oh. think it might've closed up. Man, you look The front still. This is, oh. this is like an adorning costume for the Latvian eagle. Yeah, the oh, back Latvian closed. eagle with Martin tails. The back's Dangling. closed while I tried. Ah, uh, too bad. So. Sweet. Was <laughs> so the auction house of oddities, back better than ever. All of the money raised in the auction house of oddities goes to our own land access initiative. With the land access initiative, we've done, so we contributed on a land access, a public land purchase in Maine. We um, participated on a, a public land access purchase in northwest montana cal is eyeballing one along the yellowstone river right now um and plus we will use some of the items another item i should throw this in 
You know the Missouri Corner Crossers? This is kind of oh, fresh yeah, this morning. Yeah, yeah. The famous Missouri Corner Crossers. They have donated their ladder. Oh, nice. <laughs> so you can buy a piece of American history <laughs> at the Mediator Auction House of Eyes. You can buy the device that has now been covered in, by every news agency on the planet. Still working its way through the courts. You can buy the ladder used in the Wyoming corner crossing case. The stipulation there is the, the revenue from that, and this is part of land access, the revenue for that will go in a legal defense fund, um, which has been mighty successful thus far, a legal defense fund um, for the corner crossers who have been put in a... Um, Regardless of how you feel about whether corner crossing should be legal or not, these guys have been placed in an extremely unfortunate position after getting very mixed signals from multiple law enforcement and land management agencies. And they are, at this point, they have become victims of a system that is whacked. And there's many more items in that. Many more items. I have something I could donate, but it's probably, it's, it's nothing compared to those things. But I just thought of something. I have an owl coughing and yep. one of the, and there's an exposed bone and it has a leg band on it. Holy Wait, cow. Is that taxidermy? A coughing owl? No, owl pellet. What? Yeah, owl pellet. Oh, okay. So it ate a bird that was banded and it coughed up oh. uh, all the feathers and bones and right on the outside of all of it is <laughs> that's incredible. Let me be, be, get it clear. <laughs> and another word coughing? for an owl pellet is an is a coughing. So an owl eats. <laughs> yeah, I understand how it works. Yeah, I just oh. thought it was called okay, a pellet. So an owl not a eats in our in our book Catch a Crayfish Count the Stars, we have a thing about we have an instructional about how to dissolve and dissemble owl pellets in order to see what all they've been up to. So an owl will eat its food whole and then digest food and regurgitates the bones. Yep. In these little balls. And you'll look at these little balls and like a standard thing to see in these little balls is mouse jaws. Yeah. They stand out real good. Yep. Mo mouse molars. But you didn't answer my question. Bone. Is another word for an owl pellet an owl coughing? I've never heard him. I've never heard that word. Is before. that what you so, said? Yeah, that's or why I asked my dumb The reason question. why that we've used that term before is to let people know that it's it's that they're not pooping it. It comes scat. out of their out of their mouth. Because they might think it's gross if you shat it out. <laughs> it wouldn't be quite as the the, the auction value would definitely go down if it, if it wasn't yeah if it wasn't a piece of owl shit. Man, we've had some. See, That's we've cool. had some auction house of oddities donations that we've had lawyers prevent us from selling. This isn't one of those things. Was like me showing up at someone's house with Luke Combs' guitar and like playing him a song, one of them that they nixed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that brought up liability problems. Yeah. You could be lured into a, into a sordid. You could be yeah. lured into some kind of yeah. sordid situation. Put the lotion on the skin. Yeah, it was gonna be. We had one that was Chester was gonna show up. Like you could have him. He'll wear whatever you want. Right down to right down to his his thong. No, no we never said that. <laughs> I never agreed to that. You'd be like, I'm on there at midnight in the thong. <laughs> oh my God. And the lawyers nixed it. I think one, one that got nixed cop. was Spencer and I getting tattooed. Oh, yeah, that got nixed. Yep. Oh, that you yeah. were going to be able to pick whatever tattoo you wanted on Seth and Spencer. That got nixed. A lot of things get nixed. <laughs> kind of happy. But this that owl pellet, so it just gets better. This is like, do you remember when I was a little boy? They would do a fundraiser. Jerry Lewis, the actor, Jerry Lewis would do a, uh, uh, 
fundraiser for MS. Uh, remember Jerry's kids? He would do a fundraiser, and he would do it for 48 hours, just get delirious at the end. I feel like that right now. You couldn't even tell what he was saying at the end of it. It was a whole part of the event that he would stay up that long. Wow. But this, just, this is like that because it just keeps getting better and better. Dave Smith has now donated an owl pellet with a banded bird foot sticking out of it. Did you lacquer it to hold it together? Or is it pretty no, good? No, it's it holds together really well. It's just in a little plexiglass case. I might have to come up with a more decorative case or something to put it in, but that'd be wonderful. It's just sitting, you know, it's just sitting at my house. It's it'll be there till the next glacial period if I don't do something, you know, with it. So, do you know what kind of bird Thank you, it Dave. is? Yeah, I think it was a pigeon. A pigeon. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. All right, the auction house of oddities coming soon. Better than ever. All the money goes to land access initiative. Uh, we will be using the funds primarily for um, land access purchases, enhancing and improving public access. Uh, one other little money thing. There, this is kind of a convoluted story. There's these animal rights activists that um, in Nevada that target bear biologists, oddly. They target Nevada's state agency bear biologists. Um, one of these animal rights activists actually had a restraining order against her for harassing and targeting a female biologist um, with Nevada's state wildlife agency. Their, their Facebook page, just to give a little more context around them, says uh, that this page is dedicated to monitoring and publicizing the actions Nevada Department of Wildlife and the... Why is it cut off? Sorry. I guess they just failed to write a full sentence. But gives you an idea. They're like, they're watching everybody. That's yeah, so dealing a with bear, animals there. At a state agency, a bear biologist could be engaged in a ton of different things. They could be doing monitoring. They could be doing disease research. They could be doing d population demographics, distribution, but inevitably they're going to get rolled into dealing with problem bears as well. And oftentimes, in, in states that have really high black bear populations, I'm not even saying this is going on here. I'm just clarifying for people. In states that have really high black bear populations, it is so expensive and all time, so oftentimes futile to relocate black bears, oftentimes problem black bears will get euthanized because you could spend, you could send someone on a eight hour drive in some direction to drop off the bear. But once the, once the bear is habituated and tuned into human food sources, there's nowhere you're going to put it where you're taking it out of action. It's also very expensive, consumes tons of time. You have very stable bear populations. So a lot of times someone has to make the call and the bears get euthanized. Okay. It's not work that anybody likes to do, but a, a, a bear biologist can get, they're doing a lot of stuff to help enhance, improve bear populations. They're also sometimes involved in lethal control. I'm not even, that sits outside of what I'm talking about now, but this, this guy, Carl Lackey. So they, these guys start this Facebook page and targeting this individual, Carl Lackey. He sues him for defamation. The animal rights activists spend 150 grand defending themselves on free speech grounds. Okay. Meaning that they host a Facebook page and people are making threatening remarks on this page, but ultimately because of free speech issues they they can't be held responsible for what other people are saying. 
I'm not weighing in on, you know, I'm a free speech advocate. I'm not weighing in on that it was a right decision, wrong decision. What I'm weighing in on is that here you have a state bear biologist doing his job, okay, getting threatened and harassed by animal rights activists. And the long and short of it is they won their free speech case. Okay, they won it. That's fine. But now this biologist is personally liable for the 150K that has been found liable for the 150K that the people he was suing for defamation and harassment had to spend in their legal bills. There's a GoFundMe for the guy. If you can help out. He needs to make up this 150 grand that he owes these people. And again, not weighing it, like, like I understand a, a platform isn't responsible for comments to get posted on their platform. Okay, who cares? Someone should help this guy out in, in, in his line of work and trying to defend him and his family from online harassment has incurred a massive bill. Yeah, that's, that's shitty. It's, yeah. That's right. Sucks. And sucks. doing state wildlife work. Yeah, doing your job. It's insane that he's, that he's just supposed to suck it up and have these people start like trying to broadcast his whereabouts, his image, calling on people to do acts against him. I wonder if people like that um, feel good about themselves after giving this dude threats or whatever they did and then making him pay him, you know, back 150 thousand dollars i wonder if they're like yes yeah probably because they've already arrived at some kind of mental calculus that an individual bear's life is more valuable than an individual human's life or an individual not even that and that a bear the individual bear's life is more valuable than the life of a public servant working on behalf of wildlife so yeah i imagine they've gotten there mentally the gofundme is uh www.gofundme.com Here's where it gets complicated. Sorry. Dot com slash F slash Carl dash lackey dash bear dash biologist. Type some version I'll, of that I'll and you'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes. Or, or you put can it in the show notes. Go fund me and Google his name. Yeah. One, one thing we got to remember is we need good people in the world to become biologists. And, you know, this will de incentivize people to become biologists. Who would want to become a biologist? It'll be to the situation we are with politicians. Like, all the good people of the world don't want to be politicians. We we need good biologists. Oh yeah, and to ha- and yeah, and to, and uh, you know, in our neighborhood right now, we're dealing with a bear that is really, um, pushing people's tolerance. Like our whole neighborhood, we got this whole text exchange going, and um, he's now in people's garages, you know, and like the bear's pushing people's tolerance, and at a point, that bear is going to wind up. Uh, not alive. If someone from the state agency needs to come out and trap that bear, it's not like they're like, yippee, I get to go. You know what I mean? It's just like, they're like, they've tried with this bear, they have tried their hardest to button up the situation and make the bear not a problem. They've At this point, they've got months into, the, into trying to help people help this bear by stop the, the, the cause. But at a point, probably maybe the way it's looking something's going to need something's going to happen and the fact that that person would become like an online target because they get sent out to do a thing a public safety issue it's ridiculous not it, but, but again i'm not speaking to the particulars of why this guy got targeted go ahead and read up on that on your own i'm just pointing out the complexities of the whole thing 
Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, I'm in the navel, and I hear, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them. Okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds, this app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Phelps, you ready? Yeah. Yep. Okay, so uh, I was asked to uh, come on, talk about, since September's uh, right around the corner, um, archery elk kind of consumes September, at least in my life. So we're going to talk about elk bugles and 
kind of what they are, when to use them, um, and what I think about when we're trying to make those. So um, the first up is location bugles. Um, this is a call when we're out in the woods, we're going to use that 90% of the time while we're hunting. Um, and, and we're just looking to get a response from another bull. Um, I like to think of it as kind of that, that game of Marco Polo, right? I'm going to make a sound. It's, un, it's non-threatening. I'm just trying to get a response. Um, so after my morning glassing session throughout the day, as I'm walking ridgelines, trails, um, when I get to a new spot that I feel a bull can hear me, um, I'll bugle. Um, it, 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 I, in my opinion, it can't do much harm. Um, and, and a lot of times people say you bugle too much. Um, and, and a lot of times I'll get six to 800 yards away when I was just two or 300 yards away from a bull and I'll finally get him to respond. So there's sometimes not any rhyme or reason, um, when a bull hears you or when he'll elect to respond. Um, and, and so what is a, a location bugle? And, hey, and one do thing the people I wanna, that do the people that say you call too much, do they kill more bulls than you? Not usually. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to be that guy, but, um, yeah, you try not to, not, not to talk about that. Um, yeah, no, I got and, and like, there are times, there are times where you, you don't bugle a lot, but that's kind mm. of our, our go-to. So a location bugle and, and some people, we, we've, in my opinion, we've coined terms that, that we use the, the to describe an elk's vocals, you know, and so location bugle might be one thing. You know, this is kind of what we call it. So it's a, a two to three note high pitch bugle that you're just trying to elicit that response. Um, and so being high pitched, we're going to apply a little bit of pressure. If you're using a diaphragm, um, if you're using a, a, like our easy bugler system, you're going to start with more pressure than you would on say a challenge bugle or a moan or, you know, a, a deeper tone. And, and you're going to just kind of, blow into it very shortly, two to three seconds. Um, I want to be able to listen. A lot of times a bull is very quick to respond or, and you may not hear it. You may not be able to tell what direction is, or you may miss it altogether. So in my opinion, a two to three note high pitch bugle lasting three seconds maximum. Um, it's a clean bugle, non-threatening. You don't add any growl. You don't add any resonance into it. It's just a high note looking to get a response. Um, and, uh, you know you're doing a location bugle right when the volume and the tone and the resonance kind of rings your own ears. Um, you don't, you know, a lot of guys are like, I'm not getting as many responses. Um, I like to be as loud as possible. I want that bugle to reach as many elk as possible, high pitched and uh, short. And that's really the extent of it. And, and as much elk calling as we do and all these different types of bugles, grunts, chuckles, challenge bugles, you know, all the cow calling, I would say that once again, 90% of the time, this is the call I do all year long until we locate a bull. You want to rip one out for us? Yeah. I'll turn away from the mic so I don't blow it out, but, um, this is where our location bugle sounds like. Tell us what you're using. Um, this, that was a bad, uh, this is actually a new call that we're, we're bringing out in 23. So it's going to be in a, in our freedom pack. So I'll just, I'll leave it there. But um, I had it sitting on my desk, so it's a brand new. It's a it's our amp diaphragm. It'd be really similar to like the Maverick um, in our lineup. And then you got what in your hand? So this is our metal bugle tube. Um, it's the one I've been using the last couple of years. We do have our new Unleashed V two, but um, this one had a cover on it, and I didn't have to run downstairs and grab one. Got so well thought. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> as you can tell, I'm a little. I was a little bit lazy. I had a diaphragm on my desk, and I had a tube on my desk. <laughs> Nice and quick. Just 
Yep. Just real quick. Um, there were times like I've got examples like in the Bob Marshall um, and, and some places where I would get a response. Like I couldn't figure out how the bull could hear me that quick, decide to make a call and then end it almost at the same time I was. Um, and there's, there's lots of examples where if, if I hadn't have been like a short beagle, I would have missed it altogether. Yeah. Um, I think it's, so it's I like similar to just trying to locate turkeys where you want something so fast and abrupt that you can go from making the noise to listening mode real quick. Yep. Yep. Um, missing it all together or a lot of times, and, and I talk about this a lot of like not bugling too much at them. Um, there are times where, uh, if I can't tell the direction off of that first bugle, I'm like, dang it. Now I got to call again, you know, so I know which direction to go or get the wind right. So I really want to try to get as much information out of that first bugle. I get back as I can without screwing it all up. Got it. Um, so second, then this thing, next bugle, second thing to keep in mind. Yep. Yep. And then this next bugle, which actually we'll call can, I challenge quick, bugle. can I ask a quick question, Jason? Yeah. What yep. uh, do you hear uh, bull elk doing location bugles? Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you go out in the morning, don't make a peep and you're in a good spot with, you know, the, the bull to cow ratio is high, or there's multiple herds that have joined into, you know, a, an overnight feed zone or, or whatever it is, you know, we kind of call them those little bit of rut fests. Um, they may be challenged back and forth, but you will have bulls just locating. Um, we've been in, and you know, it usually happens at better units just cause you're getting more action, but we've heard bulls like running up and down ridgelines, um, obviously just looking for cows when we've called them in it's been probably your semi-mature bulls not quite big enough to have a herd but but definitely you know five and a half years or older and they'll just run around looking for cows locate bugling and they're very very talkative and they locate a lot and so that's really kind of what i relate that to is well real elk are out there doing the same thing um we've heard them do it we've we've been across the canyon and literally heard a bull walk up a ridge or out a ridge line and beagle its way down, um, just trying to pick up cows. You feel like he's listening for bulls to respond or cows to respond? So cows to respond or cows to come to him. Like a lot of times when I've been able to observe like in openings or across the canyon, you know, the way that, that nature works is that bull will bugle and then any cow that's looking, you know, because the cow will choose the bull that she wants to reproduce with, um, that cow will just walk to that bull and, and go check him out and see if he's, you know, if he's the one. Um, so... So in, in nature, that's how it's working. That bull's running up and down ridges or out ridges, and those cows are going towards him. Thank you. Yep. Uh, so this next bugle, once we've located a bull, now we're going to go into challenge bugles. And this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy on like what people consider a challenge bugle. You know, there's screams, there's, um, you know, there's chuckles, there's bark screams, there's all of this stuff elk will do to kind of show aggression. But what I look at in a challenge bugle is when I get in close, I've got the wind right. I've, you have to get within that, that threat zone, especially if you're hunting herd bulls, a satellite bull, you, you've got a little more leniency on how close you have to get, but if you're going to steal a bull or get him to peel away from his cows, you have to get close. So we're talking getting in within a hundred, you know, even closer if possible, wherever the train and the, and the vegetation allows. But then we're going to switch to challenge bugles. And and when I switch to a challenge bugle, hey, can, um, can I jump in just to? Of, I want to comment. Yeah. on having time I spent hunting with you is your location bugles. I don't want to say you're flipping about them, but you're just kind of looking for a good spot where you can hear. You know, maybe see around a little bit and do them. But when you go into the mode of of preparing to do that challenge bugle bugle you uh do not take that lightly no no i mean you are like extremely thoughtful about the wind where you're gonna want to be 
the topography, probably where exactly is that thing? How might it approach? Um, yeah. What shot, what shot avenues do you have? How are you going to be, how are you going to move to cover or utilize cover? Like plan B. I mean, you are doing a lot of chess by that point. Yeah. I mean, to, to, you know, something that everybody's maybe seen our season 10 episode in New Mexico, both our bulls, we got very, very tight. We kind of pushed into a spot on yours where we couldn't shoot, but we needed to be that tight. And we kind of readjusted, you know, my bull, we locate him. And then we really, would we walk for an hour without making a peep? Like we put a spot on Onyx. We went all the way around him to get the wind right. And then we literally didn't beagle at him or talk to him again. He didn't make a peep either. We just had to go on our gut. But we didn't make a beagle until he was 80 yards away. And I think you beagled a couple times. I beagled a couple times. And and that bull literally had to get up out of his bed and walk 30 yards for me to get a shot. And so it's very calculated um, before we go use these challenge beagles. And like you said, I don't hold anything back. If I did all these other calculations right um, and, and did what I – and I feel like I've got a bull with that right temperament um, – yeah, we, we, we're going to kind of unleash everything we've got. And that's really what I'm going with on this challenge beagle is I'm going to have a little more growl in the beginning of my, my beagle. Um, I'm going to kind of open up my vocal cords and really kind of get some rasp in the middle. Um, I'm going to end and, and kind of, kind of scream at them. And I usually add some grunts to the end of my challenge beagle. It's really just kind of throwing the entire kitchen sink at them to let them know that I'm here to kind of take over your area or I'm in your zone and you're either going to lose your cows or you're going to come check me out and, and see if, if we're going to, you know, if we're yeah. going to lock horns or, or you're going to breed him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's really what we're going after um, on the challenge beagle. And a lot of times, you know, we shock and awe, whatever you want to call it. A lot of times, if you get close enough and you, you haven't made another call until you get there, you really give that bull no other chance besides coming in and, and um, you know dealing with you. You've got too close to his cows. He can't take them and run, um, and, and that's what we, we, we typically will do um, when, when we go to Challenge Beagle. And so I can, I can demonstrate kind of what my initial Challenge Beagle is, and a lot of times this bull will answer right back, or we've painted the picture where we may let a cow call out right prior to our Challenge Beagle to kind of paint the scene that there's a cow that may be one of his or a cow that came to his bugle, but now there's this other bull very close um, willing to take care of her. So this is what my typical challenge bugle sound like. So there's a little bit more to it, a little bit of rasp, and you're really um, not holding anything back. You know, a lot of guys ask me, you know, when, when we're at shows or when they're talking to me like, Hey, I really want a, a, a bull call that, um, isn't as threatening or, or it's a smaller bull. Um, and I've been around a lot of great callers, um, that are just as loud as me. And when you're in the woods, the comparison of somebody that's loud on an elk call that we think versus a real bull, like it's the, the real elk is always exponentially louder. So in my opinion, you can't overblow these calls. You can't be too loud. Um, so we, we just give it everything we've got. We're, we're loud. We're in their face. We're pointing the beagle tubes at them. Um, and that's kind of what I think is a, is a challenge beagle. And those are the two that I probably use 95% of the time um, when we're out there hunting. And then there's those what I would consider kind of the third category, um, which the first one that I'm going to say is accessory um, bugles or accessory noises. And raking is one of those s sounds that isn't what necessarily, in, you know, 
coming from a call, but it's something that we can all do. And, and there's some great elk hunters out there that rake more than they call. And so we typically always add that in, um, to our calling scenarios. It adds a ton of realism. Um, and, and elk just, uh, you know, it, it, I feel it turns our temperature up a little bit, adds some, some of that aggressiveness. And it's a sign of the bulls marking his territory. You know, he's putting his scent and, and marking those trees. And so I, I think raking is, is something that should be included in almost every call in. Um, and then you've got all these other sounds that elk will make, you know, and I'm not going to get into the, to the intricacies of whether what I consider a chuckle is different than a grunt. So you got like chuckles, which are usually typically like very quick and almost ape-like sounds. You've got grunts, which is what I just did. It's more elk sound, um, more of a, of a slower paced, more elky. You've got screams. So there's a lot of times where bulls will get madder and like a screaming match. It's very short burst two you know, two seconds max where it's very raspy and just kind of a scream. Elk, um, bulls, a lot of times, if you do make a sound and they don't see you, they'll bark at you. And then you've got all of those moans that, that, that they'll make as they're, as they're following cows or, um, even like glunking, um, as those bulls are right on a hot cow, um, as they're pushing the cow around. And usually if you can hear glunking, you know, you're within 80 to hundred yards. Um, and those are kind of those accessory sounds that we always throw into situations, um, to add more realism. Would you say like, uh, I didn't hear you say like a lip ball in there. Would you say like, that's like the most aggressive, like, cause I've heard that before. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Like, is that like the the high end of all this most being most aggressive yeah, for calling? That's a that's a great question. And a lot of times, um, lip balls. I I use a lot of mimicry. So if the bull I'm calling at me is going to lip ball in this challenge bugle, I'm going to do that. If the bull that I'm calling in wants to you know do a three second challenge bugle with four grunts, I'm going to mimic him exactly. And one thing I really love to do that really seems to get them more fired up is if I start my bugle about halfway through theirs and I don't let them finish their bugle, it seems to be a way to just like, you know, piss them off a little bit more. And so we use a lot of mimicry, but yeah, lip ball is a great way to, to, to add to the challenge bugle. Um, you know, one thing I've noticed is the further South you go, the, the higher percentage of lip balling type bulls there are, the further North you are, it doesn't, you know, there may be more chuckles or grunts like our can, Roosevelt's. Can you, can you crank out a couple of these noises real quick? Yeah, so oh, I, I want to I want to tell you something too that I don't I don't know if I told you about yet. Uh, you're talking about thrash and brush, right? Yep. When I was hunting moose with Clay last year in Alaska, we were going down a hill on the last day of the season. We were going down a hill to go to a bull that was about a mile away that we just saw, and we were going down the hill fast because it was like evening on the last day. We're running down the hill, trying to get to a place, hoping to hit an opening where we might be able to call from. But it was just dense thicket, just like just never-ending yep. Aspen. As we ran down that hill, we we're making so much noise because it was just like there's nothing to lose at that point. We ran down that hill and stopped and realized that bull, we never called. That bull was coming, two bulls were coming up that hill and met us dead on just because of the noise we were making coming down that hill. Yep. And we were yep. making it's, a hell of a lot of noise, climbing over all this burned down junk, all this burned down spruce that was growing back as Aspen. Just smash, crash, bam. It probably sounded like a, a hell of a fight. And we stopped to call and realized that they're standing there. Like they're looking for us based off that noise. Yep. 
you know, when we were in New Mexico, I had scouted a couple of days prior. And um, one day I was trying to get through an area. I knew there were elk. And just walking through the grass, um, I had to hang out behind a tree for about 15 minutes because that bull had chased me down the hill just hearing my feet walk through the grass. And so I, my dad always kind of joked with me. And we grew up in a rifle hunting elk family where, you know, they go out and hunt in their new, white new balances so they can be absolutely silent. You know, that's the type of elk hunting I grew up with. And my dad's like, you know what, Jason, you're not real quiet. You're meant to be an archery elk hunter. And it really did kind of play to my favor because I'm I, I'm stepping on sticks and cracking brush and, and it just kind of works for an archery elk hunter, you know, cause uh, an 800 pound animal in the landscape, they can be whisper quiet at times, but for the majority of the time they're going to make noise, um, which you just add that realism into it. And, um, elk, elk definitely take note on, on the noises that they're hearing. As yeah. Especially when you, if you've ever listened to a half dozen of them playing grab ass on a steep slope, it's loud. Oh, yep. that, that's yep. one yep. of my favorite things ever. You're sitting there eating lunch or something and you hear that. You can, I can just picture it that, that downfall branch go pop and, yeah. you know, and you're like, that was a big animal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So raking, um, I, I can't make that sound in here, but you know, I, I always recommend you get a big stick you know, everybody wants to grab a little twig, like get something that's robust, not going to break on you through it. And, and the other thing is that think yeah, what Yanni with puts on leather work gloves before he sets to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. If, if your if your knuckles <laughs> and fingers aren't bloody, you're not making enough noise and trying <laughs> hard yeah, enough. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I like to I like to be as realistic as possible. So I try to find a couple limbs, you know, from two feet up the tree to four feet, and you just kind of rattle back and forth. You know, you hit the brush and you hit the top limb, hit the bottom limb. Uh, I don't know if it matters that much. Um, you know, there are times where I want to break a bunch of small small limbs just to add to it. You know, you can kick the ground, um, but you know, raking that's that's it's easy. But yeah, like you really need to get into it and, and picking up a bigger stick, make sure that you, you can get through that chuckles. Like I said, are a little more ape like. So a lot of times you'll get these on the end of a bugle, um, around here where I've got Roosevelt's in my backyard. I grew up with a lot of our bulls chuckling and grunting more so than like the high notes that we're talking about. But here's what a, a, a chuckle or in my opinion, a chuckle sounds like. <laughs> So a little less elk sound, um, a little more ape-like, where the grunts are a little more drawn out. They get a little bit more of that high pitch from from the bull. Yeah, man, and his belly gets into it. Yeah, you yeah, see it like grunt, his belly's like bouncing, you know. Yeah, Jason's the or the bulls? No, oh, not felt. I mean, his, his belly might be bouncing. I don't know. <laughs> That's between him and his wife. I'm talking about the yeah the bull. So so here's what I would consider a grunt. <laughs> it's a little more of that oaky sound um scream like i say two two and a half second real raspy real short and um usually when you get a bull to scream back at you his temper is very high and, and we usually have real good success with calling them in and if they scream i'll typically scream hmm so it's a scream and then you got your barks and a lot of times you'll when you do hear a bark it's it's about my second least favorite sound to hear in the elk woods aside from wolves howling. Um, but barks, <laughs> usually they have seen uh, seen something they don't like or heard something they don't like, but they can't necessarily get wind on you. So a bark's really a come show me your, you know, come show yourself or I'm out of here. I'm on alert. But and then what we will do in response is we'll bark back at them because you're basically saying, well, I seen and heard something I don't like. You show yourself. And um in 2019, when I was in Wyoming, I have a bull bark at me, 
and I bark back at him, and he kind of comes trotting out in the middle of the open. I was able to get a shot. So oh, really? always wow. be if you get barked at, bark right back at him. But it's just a, a quick blast of, um, you know, it's it's a come show yourself sound. So you get yeah, those. like he's nervous, and you might set him at ease by by doing it back. Like he yeah. might be like, oh, there's another yeah. elk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know what you can elk. hold you for a long yourself. time with their warning cry is um. You can turn the tide on antelope big time on pronghorns with their own warning call back at them. That get them to hang out. They'll they'll start coming more if you start yep. if you hide and start doing it back at them. It just really gets their curiosity. Can man. you do that? Yeah. No, that's a weird. Yeah, it's like a. Yeah, I mean, I'm not good at it, Hello? but man, you can you can take one that's going to be out and and he'll start coming. He'll be he'll like turn around and start going back your direction yeah i don't think they hear it yeah. a lot from people for sure Precious. yeah they're, cut, they're all, just, cut all that out phil phelps new call idea <laughs> yeah no. right and then uh you like the moans and stuff um you know but if they bark usually what happens if they don't see what they like they're going to run out the ridge and scare every elk or let every elk in the whole entire country know that they and they bark for you know the, until you can't see them anymore um, so it's best to get him calm back down. And then moans are just those sounds as he's running his herd. Um, as we get in tight, you know, you'll hear him making little sounds that you can't hear from very far away. And we just add those in for, for realism. Um, this is kind of what a moan, just real light on the latex. So as they're pushing cows around, they're just making small little noises that um, just at, like I say, just, you're just adding to the realism. They're more accessory sounds, but um, there are times when we'll throw those in just to, to, to be part. I feel like I kind of um, hear that too sometimes, Jason, when they're they're sleeping, when they're or they're just in their beds, right? Like almost like a moan, just like a yep. real quiet, like little. Yep. Yeah. One thing that they do, it takes a, a fairly trained ear, but uh, location bugles. We talked about them being high pitch and sharp and to the point like a bedded bull to a trained ear we can we can pick out usually when it's a bedded bull yeah the time of day usually helps us do that as well but you'll know if a bull's on his feet versus bedded especially if you followed that same bull all morning his his bugle cuts to about half intensity it's a real lazy bugle and so you can you know start to tell when that bull's bedded everything gets a little bit softer and quieter and deeper all right phelps you good man yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, man. So everybody, uh, as you're gearing up, check out Phelps Game Calls. Uh, just a true uh, elk calling mastermind, elk, uh, great elk call maker, great communicator. He'll give you all of his hot spots. Just hit him up. <laughs> Any more? <laughs> we're going to auction wanna... off Jason. We're going to auction off Phelps's uh, Onyx password at the auction house of oddities. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to listen to like full. I don't know how long the show is usually, Jason. 45 minutes, an hour, cutting the distance. Yep. Yeah. But you can go. Yeah, get we're it. we're just getting ready. Dirk's gonna jump on as a as a co-host here by the time this drops. So we're gonna for the next couple months, you're gonna get um as much elk hunting information as you you want to do. Yeah, deal that, with. that's that's a great heads up. So uh thanks for the reminder, Yanni. Go listen to Cutting the Distance. So uh hosted by Jason Phelps, Dirk Durham. There that that used to be bi weekly, it's not weekly. Um, and when these boys go into elk mode this time of year, it's just going to be all elk all the time. So you'll, you'll, you'll learn more than you can remember, um, by, by checking that out. And again, man, like just, uh, lifelong elk hunter grew up hunting the hardest elk on the planet in the Pacific Northwest. 
phenomenal calls. Thanks a lot, Phelps. Thanks, thanks, guys. All right, Dave Smith. Yes. Why? Uh, give me the crash course on how DSD came into existence. Uh, the, the the short, not not so boring version. It's all boring. Um, the crash course is I was uh, massively into goose hunting, and I didn't um, have any decoys. I couldn't find any decoys that were working the way that I thought that they should. Oh, back up way more than that. <laughs> okay. Like, I mean, I'd be like, I was a, I was anemic, born, I was an anemic uh, child. I was born, in, uh, <laughs> I was born in Cottonwood, Idaho. Okay. Uh, born in Idaho. Well, so I, yeah, I was born in Idaho. Yeah. I mean, my, I had an older brother. Um, I, I, I say had because he, he did pass away when I was 19, uh, when he was 19, I was 17 and he and I, we, dr- we dreamed about goose hunting our entire lives. Like we, we used to literally like draw, you know, pictures of, of goose hunting with crayons. So and most kids are drawing army tanks. In monster trucks, you guys are growing goose hunting pictures. Pretty, pretty much, and it's it's kind of a weird thing. I mean, like um, our dad hunted, um, but and he was a good great archer, um, but he hunted mostly before we we were born. Um, but my brother and I, we both had the the hunting gene, you know, for sure. We could just tell, and for some reason, we were just obsessed with geese, even though we didn't we didn't really have any exposure to goose hunting, and we didn't even have any geese around, and um, so. All of a sudden, we we started getting geese. Just because uh, you're you're old enough that goose numbers weren't what they are. Yeah. So where I live in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, there's uh, they really the only goose was the dusky Canada goose. Mm-hmm. So and those and so in the '60s there was an earthquake in Alaska that uplifted the delta sure, yeah. where they where they nest, and then um, all of a sudden mammalian predators could access it. So the 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 numbers of dusky Canada geese, you know really crashed so there wasn't a snow, you know, it's funny snow though snow. we hunt a spot i have hunted a spot not hunt i have hunted a spot in alaska that was hay fields and it recessed and became marsh in the same earthquake that's oh that's good to hear it became a wetland yeah. in the same earthquake yeah, yeah. so what that and probably, there's still equipment laying out there yeah that's, that thing sunk yeah that's that's what i think with all this stuff there should be there should be an upside that can't always be a downside yeah, only yeah. you know like um and that probably that probably helped cacklers, you know. Got it. Uh, so, um, so we had we did have geese in the valley, and we couldn't hunt them. Um, and and there was a while where we could. And when I was very young, I I went to you know quite a quite an effort to hunt to hunt them, and that's all we could hunt is dusky Canada geese. I mean, I built I would I would dig pits with a shovel, big huge pits pits with a shovel, and build these really elaborate wooden pits with like trap doors that you know spring open and swivel chairs and everything, and go and drop them into those those holes. And I made homemade decoys out of you know I mean I was dirt poor, so I made decoys out of like you know canvas bags and anything I possibly could. And um, you know uh, the first I have pictures of. Me and my brother Danny in high school hunting geese when they first opened the early goose season in Michigan. And our decoys, we took five-gallon buckets, cut them in half lengthwise, and then made plywood heads and laid out all those five-gallon buckets with plywood heads on them. And then sat smoking uh, 
making corn cob pipes because the corn was still standing, <laughs> making corn cob pipes and smoking corn silks, and they're trying to get a goose nice. to land in corn. those buckets. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I mean, like for us to get a goose to even fly by in range was a big deal. Man. Yeah. Well, and it's like, yeah, all those decoys were working reasonably well. And then somebody had to come along and make like an ultra realistic. Like it's decoy. an arms race, right? Yeah, it's exactly. And then, and then it kind of had, it affected the whole industry. Um, you know, so, and then everybody had to make uh, realistic decoys. So, um, but in my, in my case, I got to the point where more and more geese were 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 wintering in our in our valley. So they just were, as numbers improved. Oh, they were just they just kept coming up and up and up. And so the like, was it like, was it changing agriculture practices or was it just geese numbers were increasing? It it was neither honestly. Oh, neither. So what was happening is all the geese. So the dusky dusky numbers never really came came up to levels that are like they're not they're not huntable or anything like that. Okay. Um, what happened was. The, all the geese that were wintering in the Central Valley of California or the, or Northern California just started just started wintering in the Willamette Valley because of drought patterns, or it's not well understood. I don't know because that that changes that that goes in cycles. You know, every ten or twenty years, and we're starting to get snows where we never had snows before. Okay. Things like that just change, and I I don't really know the answer understood. the answer to that. Yeah. Only the geese know, but um. So so now we had all these these geese and nobody really knew how to hunt them and they were trying to work out a way that that you could hunt them because the farmers were you know kind of alarmed by this so they worked out a way where you could hunt you could hunt Canada geese we had seven subspecies of Canada geese in the valley and um, but that was before they shrank didn't it didn't we go just because of lumpers and splitters on in taxonomy didn't we go from twenty eight geese down to three or four well because we the, the orth the ornithological society one day just said just scrap all that it's just it's we're splitting hairs yeah i mean there's definitely there's definitely some of that it went from 28 down to maybe 11 okay and 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 one that's extinct um but people still argue about that you Got know it. like um so you know there's isolated breeding there's isolated breeding groups uh, especially of lessers, and some people will say that is a separate subspecies, and some people will say it's the same. Yep. And that part is so confusing. I mean, nobody knows the real the real answer. But yeah, the, maybe because it's all definitional and just varies on the person. It's just it's it's highly subjective, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what what we were most concerned about concerned about is just like from a legal standpoint, what we could shoot and what we couldn't, and uh -huh. everything. So we you had to. Um, take a course and pass a course that proves that you would know how to hunt without shooting a dusky Canada goose. And T tell me more. I, I I don't know that I've ever laid eyes on a dusky. Okay, so T tell me what like walk me through this. They're they're really pretty. They're really neat birds. They're they're and they're sort of cool because they're sort of like our 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 original goose. They're kind of like like coho salmon or cutthroat trout or you know black tailed deer um, where I live. So they're medium large goose mm -hmm. and they're very 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 dark. So thank God they're really dark because otherwise, you know, in flight there wouldn't be any great way to. to Are there? Tell. Do they still have a white cheek, or is that white cheek get yeah. duskier too? Yeah. So that no. white cheek is white. Yeah. 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 All, yep. Uh, all Canada geese have a white cheek, and some people call them, you know, white cheek geese and everything. So yeah, they still have that, and it's that. Um, believe it or not, probably Aleutians have the the the, the lowest amount of white on on their cheeks. Okay. Um, just mostly because it usually doesn't cover the the bottom of the throat, um, but 
but dusky Canada geese have a pretty prominent white cheek patch and stuff, but they're just really, really, really dark. And they have, they sound different. They act different. They, um, they're in, they're in certain size groups. They, they fly around fairly low and they kind of keep to themselves. They don't, they don't mingle too much mm -hmm. with other Canada geese. So you take this test and then you, um, get a, a goose card that, that's your permit to hunt and you can only hunt. This is how it was originally. You could only hunt between the hours of eight and four. Okay. And you had to check all your geese in at the check station when you were done. And they would carefully measure the Coleman length, which is the, 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 the measurement of the top of the bill. That was one of the things that they would use. And then like the length of the legs and the color of the breast. And if you shot a dusky Canada goose, your card was punched and you're done for the season. Really? Yeah. And what year was this? Well, I don't know. This was back in the, yeah, I'm terrible about dates. I mean, this was all up until about eight years ago. Okay. So then huh. eight years oh, ago, man. what they did is they I, made I, it. Yeah. I, I, like, this is all new to me. Yeah. I, I, I'd never heard this. Yeah. It's, it, it was kind of cool because it just kept out a lot of, you know, the pilgrims. Like you, you had to be pretty dedicated to this and, um, and you had to, you learned a ton about geese because we would get set up before it would get light. Like some people would go out and they'd start setting up at seven and they'd be set up by eight. Well, the geese are trying to get in, you know, they're trying to get in uh, before that. So what we would always do. Is the, is the 8 a.m. restriction because they want good daylight? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. They okay. want you to be able to, to see, to see them. So, uh, but it was, it worked for us because we just learned so much about geese by being set up and, and having to watch them for the first hour, hour and a half and having them come and land in the decoys and seeing what, you know, what works and what doesn't work and all Did you ever get stuff. your card revoked? What's that? Did you ever get your card punched? I never did. Yeah. I never did. So, um, uh, one time Brad, you know, my partner, Brad, he's a phenomenal goose hunter. He's honestly, he's one of the best goose hunters on, on the planet. Um, one time he and and one of our one of the other guys that we work with, um, they got their cards punched because there, there's there's also this flock um, of lessers that hang out around Wasilla, like or Anchorage, yep. um, and those birds were fairly dark and fairly large, and so it was close. But we we felt like we knew those birds really really well, so we we didn't have any problem hunting those. And um, one time, Brad and and I think it was Brian Stone got their cards punched because they shot they shot banded uh, Anchorage lessers, and it, we've done that several times. But usually, so they have a smaller band than the than the the duskies do. Mm -hmm. So we shoot those with confidence, and um, most of the checkers at the check station just know, and they also have a reference uh, of band numbers. And so you're supposed to be able to go into the check station, and they'll see that it's a smaller band or they'll check the number and they'll say, okay, you're fine. It's not a dusky. Yeah. Well, in, the, in one case, they got their cards punched and uh, it worked out great for me because he uh, they called me and told me and they're like, yeah, we're getting, you're getting bombed in by all these lessers and a bunch of them have neck collars and you know radar transmitters and tarsus bands and leg bands. And so I went and sat in their blind. I got to hunt the next day. They just left all their decoys out and I got, a, I got some nice birds. Um, and then they sort of went to a review panel and found out that, yeah, they were Anchorage Lesser. So they got their cards oh, back. Oh, is that right? Given back oh, to vindication, them. Vindication, yeah. man. And twice for me, um, 
hunting on Willapa Bay, I got to the check station and the checker was gone and assumed that everyone was done for the day. But I was I had such a good relationship with the biologists and the state uh, state police. This was in the state of Washington that they both times they said, "Okay, Dave, well tell us what you got. You know, tell us what your birds are." And I told them they're like, "Okay, yeah, we'll send you a new card." And they sent me a new card right away. So um, that you know, I was lucky in that respect. But I never got my card punched. Luckily, like not for real. No. I've come dang close. I mean, I've. You know, I've had I've had some checkers that, um, you know, there was a big turnover of checkers, and some of them really didn't know what they were doing, and and um, some of them did, and you know, I've had some scary situations, but it, it's fine. I I I survived it, you know. And now it's to the point where there's no more check stations. Now it's illegal to shoot a dusky Canada goose, um, and the problem with that, uh, it's good and bad, but the problem with that is now everybody. Goose hunts. Every duck hunter shoots, you know, at geese flying over and stuff, and um, so it's just changed the goose hunting dramatically. Like, I, re I mean, I had some just beautiful, um, you know, periods of time, several seasons in a row, where I just had just fabulous goose hunting, and a lot of it was because of the the difficulties and the check stations yeah, and all that yeah. stuff. I mean, the funnest hunting of my life was six seasons on Willapa Bay. There were several birds that were, um, they were actually a cross between a well, Western and a Dusky. Mm -hmm. They called them Wuskies. And um, the biologists really wanted them gone. Um, and so they, they would put white neck colors on them. And so none of the locals would, would bother hunting those birds because, I mean, you're you know, you go out on a tide flat and you're hunting in this, this huge, this huge area and it's a pain in the ass to get out there. And, um, and you got to figure out how you're going to hide once you get out there and decoys, getting decoys out there and all that stuff. So it's all difficult. And then you get some birds to come in and there's a very good chance that it's going to be a whole bunch of big dark birds and none of them have a white collar. So you can't shoot unless it has a white collar. And so none of the, lo the locals were bothering. Um, and to me, it was just paradise like i absolutely loved that it was just so much fun and and uh i love shooting you know those collared birds and every one of them had a leg band and i just started you know accumulating those and i um it was just super exciting like every time i shot one and that was that was the funnest goose hunting i've ever had do you got a lanyard pretty loaded up with bands i do <laughs> <laughs> You want to auction I it do. off? Yeah, I, yeah, and I, I have over a hundred neck collars. Do you um, really? Yeah. Cow oh, man, really? And so, from from a lot of different subspecies. So I can blame Brad Cochran, I think, for that. So I tried to stick with mostly mostly white collars, um, which doesn't disrupt anything, any studies or anything like that. But man, once you once you've learned how to spot a collar in the air, and you would think that it'd be like you'd see the color of it or something like that. And it's not it at all. It just, it just looks like a little kink in the neck. It just looks kind of like a broken neck. Mm -hmm. And once you get that down, um, you can't help yourself but to shoot them. Like when you're hunting cacklers or something like that, that's just the funnest thing ever too. It's just, you get a big grind of cacklers going and um, just keep watching them, keep watching them. And you maybe look at a block of, four or five at once and make sure that they're on a line to where you have 
that second that it takes to sit up and shoot. And, uh, you know, I mean, I went like dozens of days where I didn't fire a shot all day. Um, just watch birds all day long. You wouldn't see one. And once in a while, you'd I mean, see one. Just looking for collared birds. Yeah, it was fun. It was just something, <laughs> I mean, something that we wanted to do. And, and we've also, you know, always felt like that's how we learned a lot about geese is just, well, for one, we never wanted to shoot into big flocks. So, like, when I was hunting those wuskies, I mean, there was only so many of them. And they were mixed in with other birds, and I just could not shoot into big flocks, or or I would have had it ruined, you know, in one season. Yeah. I wanted it to last and last. And so, so I was pretty, pretty patient. But I would definitely, like on cacklers, I would definitely make that exception because, well, one thing about cacklers is they're so gregarious and they're so loud and they're in such large flocks that if you have a giant grind of cacklers going and you sit up and make one shot and drop a collared bird and get back in your blind and instead of getting out and whooping it up and all that stuff, whatever, you get back in your blind, most of the time the grind will keep keep coming. Because some the birds that saw you and saw the boogeyman, they kind of freak out. But the birds on the far side of this giant grind, they haven't, they don't know what it is. And what would you keep coming? What would you consider a, in your mind, what's like a giant grind? Like how yeah, many can you birds? Explain were up grind. There? I've never heard. That I never term. heard that. Yeah. I know the grind from just being the the daily grind of like getting up so early and setting out decoys and pulling in decoys and just like it's a frequently yeah. waterfowl people will talk about the grind of just how the drudgery of hunting hard <laughs> yeah well that's a gr- that's the real grind for sure and that's a grind too so, um yeah i mean like a tornado or you know whatever we've a lot of people have different names for it but i mean it you know, it's like we would still probably call it a grind if it was two hundred birds, but but it could be ten thousand. Yeah. You know, and and a lot of times it's a thousand. You know. Um, and you're talking about just like an aggregation of birds that is kind of on the same schedule and they're coming through in a group. Uh, they're, they're, but they might be spread apart by many minutes. No. Oh. No. 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 I'm talking, talking about, about a flock. Yeah, a big, a big giant flock. Sometimes yep. other flocks okay. are joining at the same time. Yep. But um, so it inco- like it, it's a, a a grouping that you can like put your eyes on at one time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tornado. So, yeah, it's like a, like a snow goose tornado. Yeah, kind of like snow goose tornado. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Gotcha. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dogs, I'm in the navel, and I hear, Pow! I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Dogs' place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, 
to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. All right. Get me to, cause I asked you a bunch of questions, got us off. So at a point you, you got into guiding and then I want to get to how you got into how you thought to make your own decoy, which doesn't okay. occur to everybody. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the decoys came first. Um, and then the, the decoys worked so well that that's what got us into guiding. Um, so I was buying every, every brand of decoy that, that was available. And, um, and I was, I was just, the birds just weren't landing in them. And I just, and I had everybody tell me like, oh God, you know, you're, they're not going to land in them. And I was reading like Dennis Hunt books and stuff. And they were saying things like, like, uh, you know, decoys are, you need them, but at the same time, geese hate them. They're just used to lure birds into gun range. And mm. I just called to get a flyby. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, I watch real birds land with real birds all the time. And I just felt really confident that, that, there just has to be a better way. And that this, that the whole industry was just really complacent. And I heard people say things like, oh, geese have a, 
you know, a pea-sized brain and everything. And I just had a, way more respect for him than that. Um, so, so I set out to uh, sculpt. I did a clay. I do clay sculptures. I don't carve anything. Um, I do everything as a clay sculpture. And I, I set out to sculpt the most accurate decoy I possibly could. And it was a Taverner's Canada goose. That was my number one goose that I hunted and loved to hunt and everything. And now we call it a lesser because it's that's way more. Uh, common and people are more familiar with that term but that's really what the first one was so if you look when you say way more realistic i would think that and you can you can correct me on this one i would think that there's a mad there's an issue of size there's an issue of contours shape say and there's an issue of coloration yep Uh, what what is it for real well and one more thing is the finish and the finish is the biggest one of those okay those four okay so um yeah the sculpture um needs to be you know anatomically correct and then a pleasing pose the pose has to be i guess that's a fifth element right there is the pose it's really important with turkeys the pose has to tell what you want what you want the decoy you don't want a decoy of a scared ass turkey ready to run off exactly yep um but the finish it turns out the finish is probably more important than anything. And that is, um, it just can't have the wrong reflections. I mean, you know, uh, birds can see colors that we can't see. And a lot of decoys have, you know, some reflection to them and, and all that stuff. And, and in, in some ways we probably luckily stumbled on the right paint. Um, but that, that's a big one. Uh, that helps a lot, but you know, at the time the decoys, the, the decoys that were working the best for me um, before I made a decoy were were Bigfoots and Carry Light full bodies. Mm-hmm. And Bigfoots were neat because they were they really were. Um, one minute, one minute. What's so funny about that? No, it's 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 funny because Pat Durkin sent me a a report from somebody. Why is about, the report in quotes? Well, because I mean, it's not a real report if you actually read it. It's so highly it's unsubstantiated. Okay, yeah, gotcha. but about Bigfoot behavior of jumping into trees. So I just had that. Oh, so him talking about the brand Bigfoot decoys, which had like a little pedestal that looked like their feet. You were thinking about Bigfoots. Yes. Bigfoots. Yeah. Uh-huh. Go on, Dave. Sorry. I, apologies. <laughs> apologies on behalf of Corinne. I did see Bigfoot when I was. When I was. <laughs> we can edit that out, Corinne. No problem. <laughs> not, not anymore. I don't like that anymore. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I had a ton of respect for Bigfoot decoys because they were um, they were made in America and they really were really goosey. Uh-huh. But the problem is they were they were a a a large race Canada goose. They were a honker. They were a big long neck, and most of our geese were really small, short necked. You know, so that's why the carry lights looked a little more like our geese. But we just, I just needed to make something that was more accurate. And the fir- very first decoy that I made, it actually had the tail was a separate piece uh, and the wings mm-hmm. were, were separate. The wing, the primary feathers, they were separate pieces that glued on separately. So I had full separation in there. It was like probably way more than it really needed to be. Um, we made those and they worked so well. It was just unbelievable. How many did you make? Well, I mean, I started out with, with, with one pose, just a resting one. And then I finally, before I even hunted with that, I realized I needed to make a feeder. Um, and so I had two poses and the, and I went out with those and hunted with those. Um, and I would make like 18 total decoys um, for my own hunting. And then I kind of realized I need an upright, but that came along later. But 
they were just they looked like the real birds. So what I figured, what I what I learned, um, the biggest epiphany I guess that I had was when I was hunting and and I had I could have I mean I've put out twenty four dozen decoys before, um, and if 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 six real birds came and landed one hundred and fifty yards away. I um any other birds that came would go land with those six. So yeah. I realized right Isn't away. Isn't that wild? It's yeah, it's not yeah. a numbers thing. The numbers thing is it, what's most important is that they're convinced that those are real birds. And so the beauty of our decoy right now is the way that people have so much damn fun with them is in places where you have normally had to use, you know, five dozen, you can use eighteen. Um and even like on some of the places like the Front Range, Colorado where People feel like they have to use twenty dozen. They can use six dozen, um, and and so that that really helps. It just makes it more enjoyable because it's just not as much work. Less of a grind. Yeah, you're not out there at two in the morning. Yeah, less of a grind. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can sleep in, and I love I love sleep. <laughs> can you take us through? You you just sort of casually say, "Oh, I whipped up eighteen decoys." But what what does that look like? And, yeah. and can we also get into like your carving or the materials that you're using, and you know your kind of without, one. Give, without giving away yes. too much? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, what the hell were you when you say make them? You had to, you made a mold, obviously. Yeah. So I mean, in I, your garage. Yep. You had to buy yeah. a lot of equipment, right? I had a, yeah, I did. Um, I had a I had a shop already just because I've I've made fish replicas like my entire life. My artistic mentor was Ron Pitter. He's he's the greatest fish replica artist that ever lived, by far. And I just was a complete. Um, uh, I just bugged the hell out of him for thirty years. Do you still do it, the fish? Yeah, stuff? I do. You know, a few. I do just a few, like maybe maybe one a year. Gotcha. Um, and stuff, but yeah, that's um, maybe auction house donate. I mean, they're so I'm saying they're that stunning. Big, that big yeah, walleye gonna, that I got. I'm gonna do. You do <laughs> replicas go of fish people caught. What's that? The, like you do little like like whatever the hell they fish taxidermy is these days because there's no taxidermy. It's just replicas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do a lot of steelhead, and and um, I have a lot of molds of steelhead. So and um, wild steelhead, you know. There's only a few places where you can still keep wild steelhead, but you, I don't encourage that at all. Um, wild steelhead are really uh, low in numbers and everything like that. So I have all these molds of fish, you know, up to 30 pounds. and um, That you made? Well, uh, I made or I inherited from Ron Pittard. Okay. Either one. So, and I've got like, I'll be, I'm, I'm finishing up uh 3.26 pound white crappie for john brown john if you're watching i'm 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 getting it done i'll have it done um and then um i'm doing a big 30 pound steelhead for a, a guide who's been waiting eight years he's been <laughs> he's been really 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 patient he's gonna be really mad when he sees that i did the the, the crappie but um <laughs> but so i and then i have Lots of experience in sculpture, in industrial sculpture. Okay. So I worked for Nike for seven years. I did clay sculptures of footwear as part of the design process. You're like the guy in that movie, Air. My goodness, was that a bad movie? <laughs> I liked it. Dude, we have to talk about that sometime. I'll talk you out of liking it. Fine. Okay. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, that had about every problem a movie. We'll, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> yeah, you had a job there. Yeah, it did. And what, what were you, did you carve shoes? Yeah, clay sculptures. Yep. Seriously. Yep. Yeah, Jeez. I did five. Um, now I only did the midsole outsole, 
So yeah. I didn't have anything to do with the upper, but I did get to do five seasons of Air Jordans working Seriously? working with Tinker Hatfield, and that was a and my time at Nike was really I'm super thankful for it. Like they, it was really good people, and I learned a ton about molding and casting and hmm. and all that stuff. So that was hard. I got I got headhunted from Nike to go to Fila, mm-hmm. and I worked for and and also I'm sorry for any of my friends that work at Nike and I told you that I didn't get headhunted, that I quit. Um, and now you're just now finding this out. So I apologize. I'm sorry. I had to lie to you. Um, and I went to Fila and I was the manager of the model shop there and did more clay sculptures and everything. Um, oh. And before all this, I did clay sculptures of taxidermy mannequins. So I worked for research mannequins and did uh, clay sculptures. Mannequins. So, so I had the clay experience. I didn't have any training. Um, I, uh, but I just winged it and just, you know, yeah muscled through it or whatever like i'm not i can't do a clay sculpture like really well like really fast or anything like that yeah. and i'm not like na- naturally talented at it or anything like that but i'm pretty That's good bullshit. at looking at two things and figuring out what the difference is between those what well, can i tell you one of my favorite writing quotes i think it was rw yeah. rw apple he once said i can write better than anyone that can write faster than me and i can write faster than anyone that can write better than me. <laughs> it's perfect. So that might be you and Clay, that. right? Or you got to think of something like that for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's already been done. Somebody beat me to it or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm slow and and there are some people that are super talented and can do these things super, super fast. And, and what I mostly have to do is I have to assemble, um, you know, a blob of clay roughly in the shape before I can, I mean, I more or less have to build something um, wrong um, and then p- start picking it apart. Rather than building something right the first time, I usually just have to get it. I have to get something going, mm-hmm. and then I can then I can start to see what the difference is. So I got to have really really good reference material. I got to have I got to have that thing to compare it to. Yeah. So that could be a mount or a bunch of photographs or something like that. Um, that's, a, that's a great way to go about building something. You just gotta gotta start it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My you dad know? was a wood carver. Man. And he said that his strategy was if he was making like an otter, he said, I'd just start taking away everything that doesn't look like an otter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's yeah. another thing is I have a lot of respect for wood carvers because you can only subtract material. Uh-huh. So in my case, I mean, oh, I, you put it back when you make oh, a mistake all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, then I made I made molds um, of those first decoys, and I finally had to buy a rotational casting machine, which was a pretty big, um, pretty big investment. And now, but at this point, are you like, you know what? I'm gonna start selling these. No, no, no. Hold on, we're getting too far ahead of ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I got a question. I got Tell questions me. before. If, when you just whipped up the 18 that you first started with, yeah. How how, how do you whip up 18? You made the clay sculpture. Okay, made the clay. What? Made the clay sculpture and then made a silicone rubber mold with a fiberglass shell mold over the top of that to, to hold it to shape. Yep. Copy. And then since I didn't have a rotational casting machine, I had to rotate it by hand. That was the workout portion of my of my life. And dude, um, this steelhead you did is amazing, man. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And the uh, and the sorry. rotational part comes because w- once you spray, so you've got your mold, and then what material would you spray in there? So it's liquid urethane. Okay. So it's like two parts. You mix A and B together, stir it up, and pour it in the mold, and then close the mold. 
and then you rotate it, keep it, keep so it, it moving. Drip and, to one side or to the other. Yeah, just... and coat the whole inside, and then you have to keep rotating it until that stuff is hard. Sets, yeah. And then you may have to do a second, a second pour. So, and then I was like, screw this. This is a lot of work. Like, you know, I'm not exactly Charles Atlas. And um, I guess I would have been if I just would have never bought a <laughs> rotational casting machine. I love it, dude. Because I like, there's not that like more than a way out of date reference. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I bought a rotational casting machine. And, and um, at the time, I, when I was working for Fila, like everything that we would make for Fila, uh, everything that we would design for them, uh, they would send it back to the to the group in Italy, and the they, the 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 ownership group would say, no, 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 that's not what the Americans want, you know. And and we were just pulling our hair out of. They were just turning down everything that we made, and we were sure that we were making really, really, really good shoes. And most of the time, they wouldn't even make them. And we just I just watched our stock you know, go from $76 a share down to $5 a share over the course of a very short amount of time. So then they finally said, hey, we're going to close the Portland office. Your choices are to move to New York City or Italy. And um, there was about 40 people in the office. Every single one of us said, we're, we, we take neither. So now I was out of work and I was tempted to go back to Nike and stuff like that. But I was just I was so into goose hunting. And I, as much as I loved, you know, working uh, at Nike and with the people, at least at Fila, it wasn't related to to hunting and nature and stuff. So, so I was out of a job, and my sweet wife Elda Smith, I love her so much. We here we are, we're just getting married, and I and right at that point, I'm like, you know, lose this high paying job, and I'm just fully expecting her to just you know ditch my ass, and she's just like. She's just like, we'll be fine, whatever you got to do, you know? And I'm like working on this sculpture for six months and I'm having to cash in my 401k, you know, a little bit at a time to, to, to keep, a, you know, keep the roof over our head and stuff like that. And, and she's just such a sweetheart. She's just like, I believe in you and this will turn into something. And, uh, and you know, God bless her. But um, so I did. So then I bought this rotational casting machine, and and uh, that made it way easier to make these decoys and stuff. And then Brad Cochran and I, we were just like we were hunting a lot together. Brad is a phenomenal, phenomenal goose hunter. He really is. He's one of five people in the world that I would actually hunt with these days. Um, <laughs> what makes a phenomenal goose hunter? So Brad, um, so Brad is super, super hardcore. He is. He is so freaking into it. It's unbelievable. He just absolutely lives for it. After all these years, he's just as passionate about it today as he ever was. So, and I can't match that because I, I need to go on. I mean, I'm spay fishing for steelhead. I'm, I'm archery blacktail hunting. I, I need to, I need these 10 year at a time things and I need new challenges and stuff like that. He is absolutely stuck with it the whole time. And he's just, He's just accumulated so much knowledge and he has great instincts. He like, I rely on my instincts hundred percent when I'm setting up in the morning and he has instincts plus just incredible knowledge base. So, and then he's a great shot. That's important. And that, and he, he, he can spot colors really well too. Um, and, <laughs> and so like, so when you're, when you're collar hunting, you, you can only hunt with somebody who's on the same page as you. You can't go hunting with a bunch of guys. I, I, I've done it. I've shot callers when I've gotten in invites, 
but it's usually people you sit up and shoot and it's usually everybody's like what the you know and um but if you're hunting with someone else who's on the same page and you're looking at all the birds on the on the right and he's looking at all the birds on the left and you know that nobody's going to shoot until they spot a collar uh, it's just way better than 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 you know like I knew so many people that were hunting in big groups and they were sending me texts saying like done by eight, done by eight fifteen, done by nine. And, and then they would say, man, I sure wish I could get a collar. And I'm just like, okay, well I sat out there all day long and I didn't shoot anything, but you know, three or four days of that and you're going to have a collar. Like you can't, you can't be uh, dying to get your limit as quick as possible and then complain that you didn't get a collar because you got to, that's how you get a collar it, by not shooting. It Got, is kind know. of funny the 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 waterfall hunters. You hear that a lot. Uh, done by yeah. Done by this. That's sure, like a man. thing. Yeah. Is it so miserable? You really want to be <laughs> yeah. done so fast? Like oh yeah, you want to be at the Cracker Barrel by nine or whatever? <laughs> yeah. Just chowing yeah. your biscuits and gravy. Yeah. All right. Two questions. Like one, you can answer this one quickly. Have you guys gotten good enough to where you can spot the leg bands? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you set up for the lighting. We had to do that, especially on Anchorage Lessers, because there was a lot of them that only had a leg band. Um, and so, yeah, it's the lighting is everything. So in Oregon, we don't have a lot of sunshine. And on a cloudy day, it's, it's incredibly difficult. So I don't think I have ever um, gotten a band that didn't bling, that didn't sparkle, Um I think some people have, and I've tried. I mean, I've had, I've got a giant grind of pintails, um, and pintails they corkscrew down like swans do, um, where you can see every one of their legs, one after another, and stuff like that. I ne never gotten never gotten one that way, and I, I have gotten um, several leg band only geese by spotting the leg band, um, and at least one where I spotted the shape, um, like while it's quartering away. But I've gotten several that were the lighting was really, really good. And as the birds are coming and landing one at a time, um, you know, they're dropping their feet and you sit up quick enough. You don't, you, you never let them land. Like if a bird lands, our general rule is if they're safe. Like, and everybody assumes if we're shooting a lot of bands and collars there, we hear people say all the time, like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to shoot bands and collars. We just, we just let them land and we get out the binos. It's like, Oh my God, you, just, you can't do that because you would shoot 25 geese, you know, like, um, so you pretty much have to shoot them out of the air. Um, otherwise, you know, you're just going to have just too much, too many other. What is it with the waterfowlers and the collars and the bands? There's no antlers. There's no, <laughs> there's no, there's no age group or anything like that. Like, um, so that's how you guys found like the ne like the next level of difficulty, where some guy might say, "I only hunt four and a half year old bucks or older." Yeah, and you're like, "Well, for to get this with geese, what are we going to do?" So we'll shoot the collared. Everybody looks at it different. Like Brad, Brad made a comment a month ago, and I, I was just kind of appalled by it. Honestly, he was like saying like a collar is equivalent to like a three forty bull. And I was like, no, this, this is a, this is coming. This is definitely a guy who hasn't shot a 340 bull. So like, I, and what, but I, but in his defense, I think what he means is, and you got a hundred collars. Well, no, right? a 340 bull is a thing of nature. A collar is a thing uh, made at a human factory. Exactly. Exactly. It's like so, you're handling a bird 
that's been handled. Yep. Yeah. I've always had a real, I, like, I recognize it's cool, and I have a couple of my little box of, like, special things, but it's been taught. You're not the first person to lay a hand on that yeah. bird. Yeah. And, it, and some of the magic's gone. In fact, it was Humans the dumb Humans suck the, the dumber magic ones. out of birds, man. Yeah, it was one of the dumber ones because I got caught, right? Yeah, I can't speak to that. But. Um, well, what, what Brad was getting at, what he was meaning is um, waterfowlers want a collar as as bad as as big game hunters want a 340 yeah, yeah. bull all right so at what point did you say to yourself this has all been great Yanni. um but we got to move along i understand when you started making them and here you got to be honest you start making decoys for yourself in your garage you have to in your head unless you're going to lie to me you have to in your head be thinking um i could see going into business making these and selling them I mean that that came about fairly quickly once I realized uh, how expensive the like the materials were and the molds yep. were, um, and I had I, I was I really didn't want to because I just wanted them for myself <laughs> because yeah. they were working really good and and I am like super <laughs> super secretive with uh, with so much of my hunting and fishing and I don't post a lot or anything like that. I don't have any stickers on my truck. And I once in a while I'll take my wife's car so that nobody knows where I'm at or what I'm doing. Um, How secretive though! You did just give us a ton of antelope information, but not while we were recording. Hey, That's we're family true. right here, like, you know. Like, uh, uh, yeah, and I and he doesn't know this, but I held back some pretty important yeah. things. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, just the reality set in that I've got a lot of money in in these molds and everything like that, and then. And so many people were were asking for them. Mm. And then when we started guiding, I was like, well, that's how I'll make the money. That's how I'll make the money back. Got um, being a successful guide. But when you're guiding, um, more more people than ever asked to, wanted to buy decoys. So, And we were having fun guiding. Brad and I were guiding together. And we were re- remembering the other day, one, one season, we limited out with our clients every single day. Um, of the entire season, except for two days, but we still killed 56 geese in those two days. So we were we were doing really well, and we were having a lot of fun, um, and life was good, and gas prices were fairly low, and everything like that. Um, but more people asked for for decoys. Gas prices started getting high. More people started hunting. Um, some of the places that we that we hunted were getting leased out from under us, even mm-hmm. by clients and stuff. And Brad, you know. Brad, with an accounting major, the last thing in the world that he wanted to do is go become an accountant. And he was just like, let's, let's start making decoys. And, and I'm, I was all for it. So that's, that's what we did. And, and um, it's, it's not a super lucrative business, that's for sure, but it's a super fun business. Yeah. The people, all the clients, all the customers are, are great um, and everybody that you work with are all super, super fun, really, really cool people. So, I mean, I could have done a lot better if I just stayed at Nike and kept, you know, hammering on my 401k. I, I wouldn't be here right now and I'd be retired, <laughs> retired, but I have no regrets whatsoever. Um, and I mean, I would just encourage anybody that is just thinking about, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't want you to quit your job necessarily, but I mean, I mean, it's it's very doable. If if an idiot like me can can, you know, scratch out a living and um, 
doing something that you just absolutely love, I just encourage people to just go for it, mm-hmm. you know? So it, at what point did you go from uh, like the goose decoys to like turkey decoys or the buck decoy? Yeah, I got turned on to you guys years ago because of turkey decoys, and that was yeah. through Yanni. Yeah. Yanni got turned on to him. Yeah, and I know, and I feel so bad because, you know, my hearing is so bad. And one of our first conversations, you mentioned that, but I didn't hear what you said. You were telling me that it was Yanni, and and I, I didn't I didn't hear what you said, and I feel, feel really bad, so I apologize. But, yeah, I, I do um, – I do kind of recall that and everything like that, but yeah, we so we made goose decoys for and I the the years of all this stuff is kind of hard for me to keep track. I think I started the first goose decoy in 1998, and I finished it in 1999. Um, and uh, then turkeys didn't start until like I, I roughly ten years later. Hmm. And, and that how, how just, did you get turned on to me, Annie? Jay Scott. Oh, oh yeah, Jay Scott. We love Jay Scott. Yeah, he's a great guy. That guy's a yeah turkey shooting no he's a watching people shoot turkey son of a gun yeah 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 Yeah. he likes turkey hunting man yeah he does he likes (laughs) he loves turkey hunting he loves here he's got you know he likes likes being you know he he does surprisingly small amount of hunting himself i mean as a guide yeah yeah but he's in on an extraordinary amount of turkey hunts yeah not behind the trigger but on the calls you know yeah, it's it's funny. He has these incredible opportunities for elk and and coos deer, and and you talk to him, and he's just mo- so passionate about turkeys, you know, more so than yeah. than almost anything. So, um, but yeah, and so turkeys, it was just we had a lot of our customers talking to us and just saying, my gosh, like if you guys can make a goose decoy like this, the the turkey the turkey market, the turkey hunting is ready for an ultra realistic turkey decoy, and there were so many people that didn't like to use turkey decoys um but the a lot of the reason because most of the turkey decoys were just terrible and so we you know i did i did a sculpture of an upright hen and brad took it to the nwtf show mm-hmm. and the i mean it was just overwhelming support and demand for that like we were like like kind of like scared if we if we would have had the product uh, we could have sold so many thousands upon thousands of turkey decoys over the next five years after that, because it took five years before other companies kind of caught on like, oh, crap, DSD is selling the shit out of turkey decoys. We got to make one. And so we had, you know, we had a five or six years of before the rest of the industry caught up and we were making them as fast as we could make them, but, you know, we couldn't catch up. And now, now everybody has a ultra realistic turkey decoy and some of them actually, looking an awful lot like ours um and that you know that happens that's a great compliment um and then the deer decoy was kind of the same way though deer decoy was kind of a weird thing um so this guy randy birdsong who i've absolutely i've actually never met but he hunted a lot with lee and tiffany mm-hmm. um he was kind of sending messages through our you know i don't know through through our, through phone calls or our website or email or whatever saying you got to make a buck decoy and it's got to be in this posturing position. So so I make it. I agreed 100%. I think he was dead on. And um, I agreed 100%. And I just started on it right away. And I love deer love deer hunting. Where um, can people go to watch? What, you know that video you show me of bucks working over your buck decoys? Where does that yeah. video live? Yeah, so I have a whole bunch of them. I just, well, I just downloaded one a day. bunch of them. Yeah, I want to. Okay. But you guys had a montage put together. 
Oh, oh yeah. So that was that was just all our customers. Um, you know, Melissa Bachman, she's yeah. she's she's very good, uh, very good hunter, and she's very good at decoying. And you know, decoying is a little different. You know, other key. It's like if you're just a really really good whitetail hunter, you're not necessarily a really good decoy hunter. Like yeah. it's 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 just a little bit of a learning learning curve to it. Um, but she's very good. She's very very good. Totally knows what she's doing, and she provides a lot of footage for us. Got it. Yeah, um, uh, I, I always remember seeing the Heartland bow hunter guys. Yeah, have like wicked footage of using that decoy. Those guys are great. But and is they, that montage available on your website, maybe, or or somewhere? Oh, or no, or you just made it. The montage. No, no, no. It's about. like branded DSD in the end, but it's all those bucks doing that same head motion. Yeah, smashing that decoy, and they all do that little tip of the head. It's so wild, man. Yeah, yeah they they roll their eyes. Their their eyes are rolling around in their head, and they lick <laughs> they lick their nose. And then they all the cock time. their head. They yeah. always cock their head at that weird angle, man. Yeah. And they oh, just when you up. see that, there's an explosion getting ready to happen. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. were lucky enough to see two mule deer do it. I I was just like kind of in and out of binos, but my daughter got to watch it through a spotting scope, and my brother-in-law through another spotting scope. But just came in, you know, two big herds of does behind them each, and heads almost upside down. And like you're saying, you can see the eyes just doing these weird yeah. things. And I mean, seconds later, it's just, like there was that cock of the head in. is like someone putting their hand on their pistol, man. Yeah, you said the rolling putting your hand on your pistol when he cocks his head. So their blood is just starting to boil and boil and. Yeah, it's amazing yeah. watching deer interact with that thing. Well, so anyways, they, this guy comes. What's his name? Birdsong. Yeah, Randy Birdsong, and I. I just feel like it's really important to to point that out because. I could not get a hold of him. I wanted to give him a decoy <laughs> afterwards. And I wanted to tell him thank you and, and, and all this stuff or whatever. And he just disappeared off the face of the earth. And it's just like... You Still know, he, found him? No. He, You're I mean, kidding. He, he's around somewhere and he just deserves credit for that. And, and I, <laughs> I want to give him a decoy. Well, you hopefully know? someone could pass this along to him. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, remember, I remember watching that guy's hunting stuff back in the day. Randy Birdsong. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. He, yeah, he was on TV shows and stuff. Yeah, he seems like a great hunter, and obviously he knows, you know, about whitetail behavior and everything like that. So, it's like, so describe the posture that the deer's in. Yeah, so I mean, first of all, all their, um, you know, all their hair is, is bristled. It's it's raised um, in the same way that that an animal would do for heating and cooling, um, and it's just to look big. It's to look as large as possible, and then what happens with the deer is. Um, when that happens, there's not this, this perfect division of hair. So it end up it'll end up with a bunch of vertical cracks along the side and, and then vertical cracks along the neck. And that's kind of important. And that's on the decoy and everything. And the ears are pinned back as far as they go. And that I think is to make the 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 neck look big and the antlers look big. And so, you know, when I first made that pose, it's like like with a lot of poses, we had a whole, whole bunch of people saying like, that is the goofiest thing I've ever seen. You'll never sell. It looks like a donkey, blah, blah, blah. And then people do just a little bit of research. And next thing you know, they find out that we're not so far off. Um, and then the, the, the back is just slightly arched, you know, and the head is um, raised a certain amount. And uh, that's really all it takes. Did you choose a specific age class of of buck to, to mimic? Yeah, so all these decoys, because I love blacktail hunting so much, I cheat them just a, a little bit, and I'm I'll make the I'll make the 
the snout, the muzzle just a little bit shorter and, and lean them. This is a terrible thing to admit to all hard. <laughs> um, you I, like change the decoy for your own blacktail hunting purposes, your own esoteric good deer for hunting. you. Well, not a specific, like, like for the actual production decoy. Like, so every, and we sell them all over the Midwest. Like that's where they get used like crazy. And, um, and so all you Midwesterners that are using, you know, a DSC posturing book, I'm sorry that it looks a little bit like a blacktail, <laughs> but uh, that's just what I did. But yeah, it's, but, uh, um, the, but there is some important things that it doesn't look, it has to look old enough and mature enough to be a threat mm -hmm. without being too much of a threat. So it's not going to work in every region. I mean, you, you know, there are certain parts of the country where that buck would be way too big. Mm. Um, like and, if it was some 350 pound, 180 inch buck, a lot of bucks might be like, yeah, he can, I'll let him handle this situation. Oh. Yeah. And they and it brings them down off the bluffs and stuff like that. Like in broad daylight. Like I um my friend Paul Minel, he's got uh five hundred acres in Buffalo County, Wisconsin, and it's just a magical place and super fun to to go. And and that decoy has brought big bucks out, you know, in the daylight that I don't think would have otherwise mm -hmm. otherwise come out. And and we get reports of that all the time. So I'd say the hardest thing is knowing when to shoot and you don't always get a perfect shot with that, with that buck, you know, like, like if you can get him to, to be coming and he'll be walking slow. And if you can get him to quarter, you know, quarter away or broadside, like that honestly is, is usually the time to shoot. Um, if the buck crashes the decoy, you're, you're, there's no guarantee that you're going to get a shot. And at what distance? Because, He'll jump away. Sometimes he keeps running and never stops. And sometimes he jumps away 20 yards. And all of a sudden, if you had the decoy at 20 yards, now you got a 40-yard shot. And you don't know what angle he's going to. So In that but, video, it's amazing how many of those deer eat it because they're expecting resistance Yeah, that's not there. Yeah. So they're like running into this thing so hard and like, you know, they're assuming that there's something that's going to stop them, but then that thing goes and then they go ass over tea kettle yeah. and just get like this totally like, but not like confusing their toy, like take that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah then, then they look back at it. Like, what did I just do? Like, I'm like <laughs> I leveled that I'm thing. Like, yeah. I'm good at this. Um, but that's also why we encourage people to use the stand instead of the stake because the deer can actually hurt, hurt himself on the stake. You know, as they crash the decoy. Oh, can impale himself on yeah, stake. Yep. Yeah. So the stand breaks away. Everything breaks away. Um, and that's the, that's the best system. And I thought that's all we were selling is the, the stand. And those were my wishes <laughs> and my instructions. And then I just found out at the GTM that, like, no, it comes with the stake. And I'm like, ay, ay, ay. Like, I'd really prefer Just a hunk of rebar? No, the stake is fiberglass. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the problem is, is that, they they could hurt their you know they could hurt their scro sure, man, scrotum yeah. on it and then then they did would you know. have one hurt at scrotum yeah yeah I did that's kind of he became else. a cactus ball my, my own fault yeah he, he well that one was a that was a big four point like a hundred and forty inch four point and then what did he do he grew the next year he he grew his, I can't remember exactly the 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 timing of all that because. He crashed the deer in the fall, and then he it's like he grew antlers the next year and they were in velvet, and then they that was it. Mm. That's 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 the uh they never he never came out of velvet ever again. 
he had his antlers year round hmm. and they and over the years they crumbled they got shorter and shorter and shorter um and he just got gigantic because he he didn't go through the rigors of the rut uh, he just ate all the time and he had didn't have to put you know any of his eating into dealing with the rut you yep, know yep, yep. so he just got gigantic and one and he Yanni's, never came out with shirker bucks, dude. But his antlers didn't get gigantic. Yeah. Only his body did. Yeah. No, his, well, his antlers never grew again, and they actually got shorter every day because they got so brittle that they would just crumble. The tops of them would crumble down. So he hit that decoy and got his nuts caught on the stake. Well, we are assuming that. Um, I'd, I've got some videos. I've got lots of videos of blacktail bucks crashing the decoy. But it happened so fast that I can't tell for sure. Yeah. But it could have been a, a barbed wire fence or something. Um, I, we don't know for sure. It was just one of the things that we sort of assumed may have happened. Mm -hmm. I, we don't, unless anybody knows of any, I don't know for sure of of anything real bad happening, but it looks like for sure something could, could happen. Could yeah, happen no, I understand. Well. And then you're working on a female and you're talking about her posture, but you kind of you don't want to make it that her posture is like too much of a good thing, because then a buck might not buy it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, like her I, just standing out in the open, like just ready to roll, is not what you're after. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and the same thing we had to worry about age too, because if we made her, you know, a big giant mature doe, then you know there a lot of does would would, um, you know blow at her oh, and yeah. um and that could cause a lot of problems and stuff like that so so she's she's also supposed to be she's supposed to look like she's just of breeding age like just old enough to to breed um without being like a big old you know horse face like you know do dominant doe and then yeah her body posture she's mostly standing and relaxed and stuff but um Little but, hint, yeah, just a little hint. She's dropped down in the rear a little bit to kind of look, you know, kind of look like yeah, it could happen here. Yeah, and maybe, maybe. It, yeah, it's <laughs> worth it. And you know, those bucks, like they like blacktail bucks. I can't wait to use them on blacktails because blacktails. If I mean, one of the primary areas that I hunt blacktails, I think last year there was like 20, 22 bucks and two does. So if you if you use a but a, a you know, a buck decoy hasn't been very effective there, but a doe decoy, like any blacktail buck will just come running right up to it. Because if they see a doe, I mean, they just come running up up to it right hmm. away. Like they're, you know, it's like, we've all been there. You know, it's like you get desperate. Um, so it's like Bozeman 12 years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, me. Um, and she, um, you know, I've had some some people tell me that have seen her like like oh my gosh you should have had her in the full squatting position you know uh -huh, like uh -huh. and I I don't hundred percent agree with that just because you know the the doe stands he the doe stands to be bred really only when the buck is right right on her so so for her to be standing you know standing to be bred it might not look so much and when you say standing so. almost squatting yeah it's 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 a little low. It's lower than our than our decoy, and yeah. you know, like what we were saying is, it could end up looking like she's just like taking a shit or whatever. And so if she's out in the middle and like, oh, there's a doe, but oh, she's taking a shit. It's like I don't know. No I mean, it, that. might not be the most appealing thing or whatever. But I know a black tail buck would charge right in there. You sell the like, let me know when you're done. <laughs> you sell the pellets, or is that an, yeah. an add-on? <laughs> she can't shit. She can't shit forever. <laughs> <laughs>
Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. This show is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stressors. Big ones, little ones. When you keep these things bottled up, it can start to affect you in a very negative way. Well, therapy is a great space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Like, figure it out. That means figure it out with someone who's impartial, who's able to sit down and hear what you have to say and think it through with you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, there's no there's no such thing. It's like, you're not so tough. You're not so tough that it doesn't do you some good to talk to somebody now and then about what's on your mind, okay? Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash eater today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Two questions. Earlier you said in Buffalo County it would make these bucks come out that otherwise would not have come out in daylight. Yeah. Uh, can you explain that a little bit more? Because I'm trying to figure out, like, how did they get the, like, did they place them where the buck could see you it, from, it from, its from the bed? You've seen it yeah. from the slope, a brushy yeah, slope. Yeah. Bluffs. 
Yeah, so that's Bluff Country um, in in Buffalo County. So it's a lot of there's ag, and then there's you know rock rocky bluffs all around it, and the, the deer all we don't go up into the and we don't go up really we don't go more than fifty yards high into that ever. I mean, not even for shed hunting or anything. Like like literally, there's a bunch of that that no human. That's no a humans. sanctuary. Yeah, that's a sanctuary. Yep. And so they're cruising along that edge. They look down into the field. They see the decoy. Yeah, but you know those those cruising bucks don't look. They are just they just do not look. Yeah, yeah. The they'll yeah they're all scent checking areas and stuff. And sometimes they'll literally be on the other side of the top of the bluff. Then that the way that the wind comes sure, up the bluff and it sure. curls and stuff. It's it's kind of kind of crazy what they do, but. But they are bedded, and they do get up occasionally because they know they're they're in such a sanctuary that they know that they're safe and everything like that. They get up and feed a little bit, and they're bedded and stuff like that. And they might watch you set up the decoy, and then like I mean, and some of that is assuming because you know you, you can't you, you can't really see them up there, mm-hmm. and, you, and then but you are in a big wide open field. Yeah, yeah, you drove up in a bad boy buggy and. You get it, get the decoy out and everything, and you do it early enough in the in the afternoon, you know. Um, and then that's at the times when they would be able to see you, but otherwise it would be in the in the mornings when it's dark. Um, and but there's times when we don't really want to do that either, too, because in the mornings in the dark, um, those bucks are moving or moving around, and they're down on that bottom, just like with blacktail hunting. I don't even hunt mornings. I give them the mornings. I don't. I do not like going in my tree stand or or ground blind and bumping deer out or anything like that. I go in in the middle of the day, and sit till dark because I can get out of a stand with deer around at dark, but I I can't get into a stand in the mornings with the dark. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that people have with blacktails. And that's how I've. Man, I want to come out and hunt blacktails with you, man. Man, yeah, come on out. Like there's the. The way that I've finally cracked it, the code, is by getting permission on good private properties um, because some of the public stuff is just kind of horrible or burnt to the ground. Um, but I spent six six years writing over 100 letters a year in the spring um, and ended up with some with some pretty good properties. I just have to kind of get the okay, the okay from the landowners and stuff. But, um, I mean, some of them are just super great great people mm-hmm. and yeah blacktails are super fun they're not they're not as smart and cagey and difficult as whitetails so they're not nearly as like those midwest whitetails are crazy when it comes to human scent and encroachment and pressure and all that stuff and they are just super super smart and everybody that hunt blacktails assumes and always wants to believe that blacktails are the, the smartest most cagey thing the thing about blacktails is their hearing is really really good so the clothing, you know, has to be unbelievably quiet to get your get your bow drawn. And then the other thing is, is that they just don't come out in the daytime, you know, like whitetails do. Yep. But other than that, they are very forgiving. Like I could, like in, I can't hunt the same tree stand in the Midwest, you know, more than two times probably for whitetails. And it's done. You've burned it probably for the season. But with blacktails, I've, I've hunted the same tree stand like seven seven days in a row. Okay. So you can get away with murder with with blacktails. You just need a, you just need them to come out during the day. That's the hardest. That's the, that's really the difficult part about them. Yep. How do you deal with the scent issue around running a deer decoy? Well, so the most important thing is that it's it's been manufactured 
long uh, long enough and has aired out long enough since it's been manufactured. So um, that's that's the biggest thing. And then you don't touch it with your hands. So your deer decoy will work. It'll work um, reasonably good. Um, if you buy one in July um, and then air it out and everything, it's going to work good. But it will work. It's like a, like a mink box or something. It'll work better every year as it gets older. More earthy. Yeah, more earthy and and um, and scent free and everything like that. And you just don't touch it with uh, don't touch it with your bare hands, and you know don't 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 breathe on it. And then don't yeah don't ever put scent on it. You know if you want to use any kind of scent, you put it you know under the decoy or near the decoy or something like that. But you keep the decoy scent free because if you put scent on it, you know that that'll get kind of rancid over time and stuff. But you also don't put scent all over the ground or anything like that because then then you can't pull that scent with you when you leave. Um, I mean, that that's what's worked for me um, is I'll, I'll put scent, you know, like in a, in a bottle or with, um, you know, with cotton or whatever you got to do and just open it um, underneath the decoy. That's when I do use scent. It doesn't matter that much. I mean, or, or I'll put tarsus, you know, tarsus glands, uh, tarsal glands from a, from a buck. That does work at times pretty, uh, pretty, pretty darn well with blacktails. Um, you ever, have you ever listened to Clay's uh, Bear Grease podcast? No. He had an episode called Deer Stories, and there's a guy that tells a story about shooting a buck and taking the glands off it and tying the glands to his ankles. <laughs> and he about gets his ass kicked by a buck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I probably wouldn't do <laughs> that. He realized this buck is coming down his trail and is coming for him oh geez yeah it's a funny story well it could that could have been way worse because that could have been like doe <laughs> doe in heat scent you know <laughs> like as long as it the buck just wanted to kill him that's okay not as humiliating it's not <laughs> yeah, as bad yeah, in your obituary exactly. man yeah. yeah you can you so, can live so dave you live that. when you're sitting like say i'm sitting in a tree stand facing a field and i want to put a decoy out how do i place that decoy for the best shot I mean, like maybe quartering away, um, and um, but th- that just that just depends. Like quartering, I mean, quartering away would be with a doe, and and um, and then possibly quartering two with a buck. But I'll tell you what, um, probably wind dependent too. Right? Yeah, it's wind dependent. Yeah, they'll 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 try to they'll try to get downwind of mm-hmm. try to get downwind of it and stuff. Um, and so with a buck, you know, quartering two works pretty good but there is no guarantee whatsoever like anytime you think that you know how they're going to approach it like people the the idea of quartering two is the idea behind it, behind that is that they'll come and come head on they'll square up to it but they just don't do that i mean they they don't they definitely don't do that with any major consistency gotcha. because the 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 way to do damage is to ram one like completely on the on the side in the mm-hmm. rib cage. And so there's just a lot of um deer decoying is just super fun because it's not a guaranteed thing. There's there's certain things that it does for you like you can get your bow drawn so easily. Um like when you're using a a, a buck decoy because they're just so distracted. Um but there's also d- the downsides and that is like you're not sure you're going to going to get, get a shot. good shot or whatever. But I think Quartering two is probably the best, and that's assuming that you have the wind more or less in your face. 
Gotcha. Will you uh-huh. hunt them in like woodland, uh, forested uh, terrain, or is, are you always sticking to more of an open uh, field type place where where deer could see it as from far away as possible? So I'm, I have, I've set up for blacktails in in old growth timber, but not successful. Not successfully. I've tried it in the, um, in the woods, but the the best. You know, successes that I've that I've had, and I'm not majorly into deer decoying. I I will be now that now that we have a doe. Um, but the best successes that I have have been on the edge of ag where ag meets meets timber, and and that's the same with blacktails too. Meadowy meadowy areas and stuff. Um, old uh, old abandoned orchard that I hunt. Um, I've had success with the blacktail decoy there, but with whitetails. I mean, I've had it to where they're coming along through the woods, and all of a sudden they see it, and they kind of, it kind of kind of startles them a little bit. Really? Because, yeah, I mean, it's just I mean, it's it's just like we were talking about with the antelope blind and stuff. It's just better if they can see it from a distance have away. You, but have you used it in conjunction with rattling, where they're expecting to find something standing there? That's uh, what I feel like the real value would be is he's coming in, but then all of a sudden, like, oh, there it is. Yeah. I mean, I I have, but I'm like, oh my gosh, my, one of my hunting partners, Justin Kazmaier, he gets so mad at me because I'll go sometimes a whole season without rattling. Rattling is super fun, and I've rattled in some nice bucks and shot some with my bow in the in the upper Clackamas, um, and that's public land blacktails. Um, but I like, and now that I'm hunting more down in the valley, um, I treat all my goose hunting has taught me that everything everything about goose hunting is not educating animals. That's what goose hunting, that's the, so, that's the trick of the whole thing. And so so now that's affected all my other hunting. So that's why, I mean, I, I've, like on elk hunting, I've shot some big bulls and I've even got some, you know, by by calling and stuff, but I've got got more out of a tree stand on a ground blind and everything like that. Like all, and I would be a way better elk hunter if I was willing to move into those those areas and move where I need to. Um, but I'm just so about staying on the perimeter, staying out of those creepy, you know, hidey holes, out of those bedrooms, and giving them all kinds of space and all kinds of refuge. Give them the mornings. Give them give them tons of space, and the the it it bites me in the ass at times for sure. Um, but what what I love about it um, is if you don't if you don't kill one, you have the next day and the next day and the next yeah. day and the next day. You should write a hunting book like uh, Duncan Gilchrist's book, Hunt High. I, I've never heard of it. That. Well, I shouldn't say that. But anyway. What would it be called? Uh, hunt the Perimeter. Hunt. Well, hunt, see, the thing about Hunt High is just gen- – it's, it's a lifelong hunter, and it's just all these, like, really just general pieces of information. One minute he's talking about his camp, how he likes to set up his camp stove. Next minute he's talking about the way mountain goats act. But it's just, it's just gold all through the whole thing. Just random. He kind of accidentally writes like Hemingway. It's just this, it's just page upon page of just gold ruminations from a very seasoned hunter. And a lot of stuff you're like, I hadn't thought about that that way before. I haven't thought about that way before. You know, you got well, a lot of that stuff laid up in you. I want to read it. I want to read that. I want to. What is funny, man, is um, yeah, good. He's luck. dead. So check this out. He's dead, and he self-published these books, 
And and when we I started talking about it, and I'd always put them on like favorite book lists and all that, Hunt High. And it got to be where if you wanted to buy one, it was hundreds of dollars because we'd driven a lot of interest. One day I lent mine to someone and someone took it and never gave it back. So I went online and bought one for a hundred bucks from some dude in Texas. And I just buy it on Amazon on used books. And it comes with a sticky note on it that says, dude, you're the reason I bought this book. <laughs> wow. <laughs> hey, that's cool. Yeah, that Worth Worth Matthewson has has lent me a couple books about the the early Martin Trappers, uh-huh. and um, Wayne Nugis and Polly Rossborough and Martin I have known um, is one of them, and it's the same thing. You go to try to find them. those books. Like Worth lent me one of them and gave me he gave me the other. Um, but yeah, trying to find those books on Amazon uh, mm-hmm. is next to impossible. But I sure would like to get more more copies. Those books are. Inc- incredible let me hit you with one last one before we end um if you're not placing turkey decoys properly do you think you'd be doing more damage than than good meaning you got a gobbler he's coming in right can you ever have it be that it'd be just better not even to use the damn thing than to have it set the way you have it set you mean because because he's going to be searching and covering? Yeah, ground? like do you, no, I mean, because that you would put your decoy out in such a manner or in such a pose that or it's in such a position that when he sees it, he's like, "What? That's not what that hen's supposed to be doing." I'm out of here. Oh, let me mean, let me phrase it a different way. How important is placement over just having the presence be there? Well. I've only ever done it the right way, so um, <laughs> I, no, no, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just, um, you know, you can you can screw up deco- uh, goose decoys really bad, really bad because with placement, yeah, with placement, like flat configuration. Yeah, you can have them all facing in the wind. You can have them crooked on their stakes. You can have them um, spread way too far apart, and and people do all of those things all the time. Uh, and it can make a huge, huge, huge difference. On turkeys, I mean, I haven't really found a really wrong way. I, I mm-hmm. haven't seen any spreads from our from our customers where I looked at it and just went, eee, you know, okay. like yeah. um, I I think you know because turkeys are they're they're a little different than geese. Um, and I, I I I'm sure there's a wrong way to do yeah. it, but, but it's I, not, there's I not really as sensitive. Know. Safe to say just based on what you're telling me, it's not as sensitive as waterfowl placement. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you think it's, is and then, but you wouldn't say the same thing about deer. You think there is a, you found that there is like the wrong place and wrong way to set deer decoys. Well, I mean, you don't like them in timber. Yeah. I don't like them in timber, but I probably need to experiment more um, on that and stuff. So I wouldn't consider myself to be an authority, um, on that. And I like to experiment a lot and, um, and the animals always surprise me, you know, Uh, every time I think that there's a rule, um, they, the animals show me otherwise. Um, I know that, you know, there's times, there's times when using a strutter, uh, like a, a, like, let's see. I'd say there's times when using hens only has helped me make some good shots with my bow because the, the birds came in strutting. Yeah. And then there's times when when using uh you know a gobbler decoy has has made me miss some pretty important birds like that would have really meant a lot to me. 
Um, and I couldn't get my bow, my bow drawn. Um, or I couldn't get Because he came the in too hot on it. Came in too hot. But they'll also come in and just put off. And you're thinking, what did I do wrong? And then after a while, you're like, I didn't do anything wrong. He saw that thing and didn't like it. You know, I... I Dude, hear of that. That happens, man. I'm I know not, it does. I know I've it surprised does. them before where they come over. You have your decoy up. They come over a little knoll or something too close. They see that decoy. They don't want to, they're not, they don't like, feel yeah. like duking it out. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Well, and I've had I've had blacktail bucks do that where um they stepped out a hundred yards away and saw the decoy. And I was just like, oh my God, it's it's happening. I'm getting back putting my release on and everything, and I'm all excited and I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting. And I look, and I look, and expecting him to be, you know, real close, and now he's high, hightailing it away. Yeah. It definitely. I mean, you see a lot of them plow in to beat that thing to death, but it does happen where they put off, and they like. And I used to think inevitably, I used to think that we spooked that bird. Someone moved, someone spooked that bird, but the turkey biologist Robert Abernathy, who's a very experienced decoyer, yeah, has been decoying for a long time. Yep, he's convinced too. He says, I think sometimes those birds come in, they see that. They see that gobbler, and they don't like it. Well, and, and they're could, putting off. They're putting off, or just ghosting out because of that presence. He still uses it, but he says that's the thing that happens. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. And then also, you just never know what and what that decoy represents. It could be it could represent a bird that he's already familiar with and is already you know uh, lower lower on the the hierarchy level. No. Than he, he, like he hears you know, a hen, he comes in, be like, ah, damn it. Gobbler's already here. <laughs> Billy's here. Yeah. <laughs> he well, whooped my ass last week. <laughs> my answer to that is when in doubt, well, for one, you know, use, use a lot of hens and a lot of like a preening hens and feeding hens. That always looks, makes everything look, you know, relaxed and stuff. And even yeah. if there's a gobbler there. And then also, you know, a, like uh, our, th- our three quarter strut Jake, which is actually a half strut Jake. And somehow it got named a three quarter strut Jake, but that's <laughs> for another day. Um, but but that's a good decoy to use with a bunch of hens because um, it looks a little less intimidating and, and mm-hmm. it just looks like, well, I mean, I've had so many times when uh, gobblers will come in that I know are even a mature tom that I know is not really a dominant bird. And even with, even with the, the jake there, they just come in slow enough. And then before I know it, they're mounting one of the, one of the decoys. Yep. And you can also put, a submissive hen a distance away. Like, so he's not necessarily standing over her and stuff. So it feels like there's always a combination that will give you the best chance, but there's always going to be situations where just you've slat. And I'm our, glad our it's buddy guy, Zuck, who's a, who's very seasoned Turkey hunter. Um, he has a little rule. He like, he's not the kind of guy that believes that everything is, you know, one way or the other, but he has a little rule for himself. He don't set a male decoy in the evening. Because he's like, they're just not in that mood, I don't think. Yeah. He goes, you're just less like, he finds in the evening, you're less likely to get that, I'm going to kick that thing's ass oh. response in the evening, and you're more likely to push him off. And he likes hens in the evening because they're just more mingly. You know, he might want to follow them to the roost, whatever, but they're not wanting to deal with a big old strutter at night. Yeah. So that, that's just his take on it, right? So I have killed some some big mature toms like where it was like literally in the last five minutes of mm-hmm. shooting time. Yeah. And, and, and I've had them go a hundred yards out of their way to come up to the decoys. But the lesson that I've learned and I've got burned multiple times doing it is they'll come up and they'll jump on, they'll, they'll jump at the decoy 
one time. And then I'm like thinking, okay, here we go. It's gonna, it's just gonna thrash the decoy for the longest time and I'm gonna have this perfect shot. They'll jump on the decoy one time and then they're about done. That's it. Like it's just, I agree with that 100%. And that's if they even jump at the decoy. Sometimes they'll come up, but I mean, there's- It's in the evening. Yeah, in the evenings, late at night. It's just, and that's only when it's a, if there is a, if there's a Tom that is the absolute boss and he's got lots of hens and he's gonna go up to roost and he sees a, he sees a strutter with hens, a lot of times they will come and check it out, but they're not gonna be aggressive. Mm-hmm. And I've I've killed some nice ones with my bow at real close range that that way. Um, but I've learned the hard way to that you don't have much time. You better shoot. Um, you better shoot like as he's approaching the decoy. Yep. Because you're not gonna get get him. I've never had one just thrash the decoy like crazy like they do in like mid morning. You can't get in your head that like I'm gonna have a big show and then sometime later shoot him. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's the thing I still do hunting turkeys is um now and then maybe not, but I usually when I get a shot, I take it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even though you will see where you know they come in and interact with the decoy for a long time, like if there's the one I want and I get a shot. I'm shooting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> and, and just, I, I love it. Just rather than expecting that it's going to be this crazy, you know, fight and breeding and decoys and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? I mean, and some of that, it's just, it's just so weird. Like, I mean, and Brad and I have joked about like, what if, hum- what if humans did exactly the things that turkeys have done? Because we've had, we've had times when this, this, this whole flock comes in and there will be, I mean, they're like humping the decoys and then they're fighting the decoys and they're fighting each other and they're humping each other. And, and it's like some of this stuff. And then you'll, we'll shoot one. And sometimes we'll use like a Magnus bullhead or, um, and it just shoots there. It decapitates them instantly. Um, and we feel like sometimes that's a good way to get a quick, clean kill. And then like this, this turkey's laying there with no head and it's flopping around and other ones are coming in and jumping on, top of it and trying to fight it and and um it's just like it's just so bizarre i know i got some bars i could remember that that might have been a little bit of the groove but that's about <laughs> it man yeah it is way yeah. different way different than folks and they can fly <laughs> yeah <laughs> i had a blacktail buck a few years ago that um came in and gave me a really good shot and i double lunged him and he went short distance and bedded down and five minutes later a nice big blacktail buck came in and um and just went right over to that he just went he just knew right where that buck was just by scent really and kicked him up out of his bed and what yeah kicked him up out of his bed and then he went and bedded down it down again and he went and kicked him up out of his bed again and i was like i don't know what to do um (laughs) and stuff so yeah there's there's a lot of strange things that happen in nature and yeah i agree like that show you know it's like some shows are better than others like a big grind of geese. That's a really pretty show, and it's really, really neat thing, and it's worthwhile. And if you don't shoot at all, like that's just super fun, and it's a totally successful day. But you know, when turkeys come in, I agree. Um, if you get a good, quick, clean kill, you know, and that's and you're there to kill one, and um, you know, it's like you take, take, take the shot. You don't have to necessarily see them like beating up a decoy for an hour. Yeah, you know, our buddy Parker Hall. He thinks that if you kill a turkey over a decoy, you go to hell. 
which makes me wonder where's the guy that makes turkey decoys end up in park <laughs> a, special, a special place they know. got a real hot corner in, the, ba- for in the basement yeah no it's i've had hell's basement say that too they uh That'll be maybe that's Dave's book of hunting tidbits called Hell's Basement. Yeah. In the old days, we would have named this episode Hell's Basement. Jay Scott's uh, ripping what little hair he has left out here, and you say you just let him, you know, cut shoot him as you soon, soon as you can because you know, he likes to see him come. He in. likes to sit there and watch the show. Yeah. Yeah. He likes to get him when they're he, leaving. He, he enjoys the show. <laughs> I like to get him coming. All right, Dave Smith. Thanks for coming on, man. Uh, thanks for having me. I, I don't have... know who told me you don't do uh, you don't do podcasts. Which made me really eager to have you on. Yeah, you know, it's the guys I... that really want to do them that make me leery. <laughs> <laughs> now, the people that I work with are probably surprised that I even you know agreed to it. But I just uh, you know things have changed now. I just want to be as cooperative and helpful as possible. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> So. Well, listen. You did such a good job. I've already told Corinne to put you back on the uh, put you on the returning guest list. Oh yeah, you got to join the all timers, man. You know, bring um bring Brad Brad Cochran and, right. and Mike Hallian, uh, Greg Hogan, Scott Sprecher. Those guys. Uh, I'm I'm not kidding. They they have a lot of information. They're super fun fun guys. And next time we next time you guys, I want you to bring your whole team. Okay. And we're just gonna do where they got to think. We used to do these things called hot tip offs. Where it was like a showdown of hot tips. We should revitalize hot tip offs. Yeah, I was yeah. watching some the other day. We used to do these showdowns. I was, I was watching them yesterday. Logan is like, revitalizing yeah. them right now oh, on oh, the website. That's great. So a hot tip off. You have a competition. Who's got the hottest tip? You bring all your crew in, and you guys could have a hour long hot tip off where it just goes around the table, <laughs> and then we'll score it, and we'll wind up with a winner out of the whole just goes round and round and round and round and then we'll score the whole performance how good are you in the kitchen the dsd hot tip off what's that how good are you in the kitchen terrible mm. yeah you, you're married right what's that you're married or not married? yeah 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 i luckily well, you guys I, will still be fun to play uh trivia you've been married a long time yeah yeah um, i think you'd be good at trivia man yeah, yeah, but if you're not, if you do, if you say you're terrible in the kitchen, boy, that really that's twenty five percent of the questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I bet you he's got some hot tips about it being in the kitchen, like when your wife's calling to go married? get a frozen pizza. Or it'll be yeah, twenty twenty five years of spring. <laughs> and my wife is of Mexican descent. She's a great cook. She doesn't think that she is, but uh, she everything she makes is amazing. So, um, was your wife born in Mexico? No, no, she wasn't born. US She's born. Like, like three generations out. I see. Yeah, I see. So, but twenty-five years got the whole. Uh, She's got all the traditions down and everything like that. Her grandma didn't speak any English at all, and um, and where her parents live in Eastern Washington, it's just you know we go over there and make tamales and really? and uh, it's a lot of culture, a lot of Mexican culture. It's I once fun. traded someone a bunch of um, a, a woman from. Uh, damn it. I wish I could remember where she's from. She's from Central America. Either way, they make tamales slightly different because than than Mexican yeah. tamales that yeah. I know because yep. they would put like uh, dried fruit in them. Uh huh. Where was she from, man? Maybe Colombia. That sounds so okay. good. So, mm-hmm. so I gave her a bunch of muskox meat. The deal being that she made tamales with that muskox meat. But I got half of the yield. 
mm-hmm. which she thought was a screaming deal. I thought it was a screaming deal. So whatever, she made like 20 pounds worth of muskox meat tamales, which is a shitload of tamales. And then I got half of the take. Nice. No, it was a phenomenal deal. I had them all lined up like bars of gold in my freezer, man. Yeah. But we, we went through them pretty quick. But they had like dried fruit, which I thought was Interesting. unusual. I, yeah, I'll have to f- find out what that is. But yeah, they, our uh, family doesn't do it like that. Just traditional with pork meat and all that. Give me your hottest piece of marriage advice. Give me a hot tip off on marriage advice. Um, I mean, I just, I don't know. I, I just feel like I just got so lucky and I'm just so blessed and everything like that. I, I don't, I don't know what I just, I think my wife is just the rock of our, of our family. And, um, she's just a total sweetheart. And, and, um, you know, it's like, she's the reason though, I guess why I don't do very many trips. Like I feel like I found her sort of late in life, even though we've been married 25 years or whatever. And so I love my home life so much. So it's turned me into a, a homebody, like steelhead, steelhead fishing and bass fishing and, you know, uh, some you know, some a lot of the stuff that I do are stuff that's close close to home because I you like, like my home. home life. Yeah, eating, eating them tamales. And you never know how much time you'll <laughs> how much time you'll have. You know, so I got some marriage advice. So for find you. the right my one. My buddy Tony, my buddy Tony had this little tidbit one time. He said we were, he and I were both got in trouble with our wives one time, which we didn't even deserve because we had taken all of our kids clam digging. So you think how could you be in any trouble? Like normally, if I take my kids to do something, my wife's very, very happy with me, right? If they're all gone, there's nothing to complain about. Anyways, on this trip, he, Tony had his kid in one of those kid carriers on your back, clam digging, but he didn't, just, he didn't tie her in there. Yeah. And he's out in the water and leans over. Kid <laughs> <laughs> goes oh. right, <laughs> comes right out of that backpack carrier because he was like leaning over, fishing around in the water for something. <laughs> Anyways, on the way home, we got pulled over by Concussed. a cop. Like, next thing you know, it's like one in the morning. It's just a whole late deal. Anyways, he said to me, Steve, and I, and I got yelled at by my wife on speakerphone. He got yelled at by his wife. He said to me, um, Steve, if we were the way they wanted us to be, they wouldn't like us. Mm, I, I told like that to that. my wife. She said, yeah, I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I don't think that's marriage advice. That's just funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, maybe like a meat eater's guide to marriage advice. I can come mm. up with a couple tips. <laughs> I don't know about you, Chester. <laughs> I've heard that Chester get yelled at eastbound and westbound on the same highway. No, but, <laughs> but, then, but then he's just got to sing that beautiful song that he yeah. wrote to Danielle. Chet just knows Danielle, what not to do, and now. then yeah. he'll make everyone weep, and I've it'll all Ch- be forgiven. Yeah, I've been driving down the road with Chester. He's in all tr- kinds of trouble because he's late from getting home from fishing. And I said, well, what are you supposed to be doing when you get home? He said, going fishing. <laughs> <laughs> he was late for his second fishing trip because he'd been gone too long on his first fishing trip of the day. That's, yeah, it's, it's always bad when you, when you tell you tell your wife you're going, you're going for a half a day and you come home, she's like, I thought you were going for a half a day. And you're like, well, 12 hours is half a day. <laughs> In Chester's defense, he was supposed to take his wife fishing. She was just pissed that he wasn't home from his other fishing to do that fishing. All right. Thanks for coming on, Dave. Did you uh, like it? Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I, I was, you Did know, you like it or hate it? I liked it. I was kind of stressing it a little bit. Oh. I didn't sleep much last night. Don't go on all kinds of other podcasts. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> do you know what I mean? Don't become yeah. one of them guys. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, no. Keep it, keep it tight, man. We'll keep it, yeah, for sure. Yeah, keep it tight. And everyone can find uh, Dave's decoys at davesmithdecoys.com. We haven't, we'll merge that into the Meat Eater site at some point soon. But yeah. right now it's one no, I heard he prefers DSD because he's uh, he's so modest. He doesn't like being such a showboat. Dave right. Smith decoys. That's why he well, always goes with DSD. I'm just I'm just giving the audience the uh, yeah. URL. Well, yeah. Yeah. see the decoys are. But he's so come good. to prefer DSD. I get yeah because <laughs> he doesn't it. want to detract from his coworkers' efforts by I saying Dave Smith. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It's like we, uh, and that's a, that's one of the things that's we're having a hard time with that adjustment of, and everyone's having a hard time with that adjustment is at DSC, we've always operated uh, as a group, you mm-hmm. know, and made all our decisions as a group and, and a consensus and, you know, discussing everything. And so there's definitely not one person that is sort of the, you know, the, mm. the North star um, of DSD. Cause you didn't flex a lot of muscle. <laughs> You're so <Yeah>. self-deprecating. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. Aww. I mean, I'm just being, I'm just being real. Like, yeah, like, yeah. like I, I, uh, um, definitely, you know, I, I didn't do anything. I, I mostly just work in my, in my shop, a distance away from the, from the, uh, the decoy shop and do clay sculptures and everything. And so, you know, I just surrounded myself with people that are really good at, at all those other, all those other things. And I never wanted to be super involved with the, you know, with all the headaches of the business side of it and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, we're just definitely, we're definitely a team and operate, operate that way and stuff. And so, um, you know, that's take some adjustment for everyone to realize that I'm, I am not, you know, I am not the, the, the decision maker representative and, you know, of DS, of DSD. Well, you just love you clay. Didn't name you it love Dave clay. Smith decoys, which <laughs> yeah. doesn't lend someone to think that that like when you're talking to Dave Smith, you know. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And, and again, I I tried. You're willing to see that point. Yeah. Okay. Well, you guys yeah. do make some really, really good realistic decoys. Like the other day when I saw more of that full spread, I was very impressed. Oh, thanks, Jess. They're I good. Appreciate that. They're yeah, good. That's- you oh, know, we, we didn't even get into fur trap. We got to wrap it up. We didn't even get into fur trapping. Oh yeah, no, you just have to come back. Like a Martin, yeah, maybe you really... just make a Martin decoy. Oh. oh, fur trapping is um, one of the things that helps me set up ground blinds and tree stands. Like I think if like if you if you don't have that, I think you're you're you know sadly missing out a tiny little bit on setting oh, up oh it's very educational we'll save that for the next time you're on sounds good so you'll come on we'll do a hot tip off with you and your guys then you'll come on we'll talk fur trapping sounds great all right and then you win trivia <laughs> i think i'm gonna Trifecta. still beat them it's not maybe beat them horribly bad all right man don't go doing a bunch of podcasts now <laughs> I, yeah <laughs> don't worry <laughs> Done beat this damn horse to death.
taking no one to ride away. When it done beat this damn horse to death, so take your new one and ride on. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. 